Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. All the banks are broke. Oh, why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians, to prison, it will continue. for another exciting episode of Thriller Insider. Today is June 11th, 2021, and we are talking Green Swan 2021 conference recap. That's right. All this news that you're going to hear today came from three days of the BIS, Bank of France, IMF, and the NGFS joining forces (laughs) to co-sponsor the Green Swan conference and implement new monetary policies that, that's right, that you will have to follow and that will definitely disrupt this entire world. So you're probably wondering, Car, why, why are we why are we talking about a Green Swan conference? Well, it's our first year covering it, and I trust me, I really don't want to cover this, um, but I feel like we kind of have to, right? I feel like this is really important for not only understanding what the implications with what central banking is going to be doing coming up, but how they plan on to implementing this continuation of money printing. I mean, I think it's safe to say now that COVID was a clear violation and not only human rights, but a clear violation in how we spend money, right? Monetary wise. It was clear to me. It's clear to me now. It was kind of clear to me then, but, you know, it was probably too touchy of a subject to say it back then, but they definitely stopped everybody from working so they could prevent a recession, right? And that came from the World Economic Forum. And these are the same people that are bringing you this, the Green Swan Conference. You have the Bank of International Settlements, You have the Bank of France. You have the International Monetary Fund. You have the Network for Greening and the Financial System. That's the NGFS. I'll put all this here in the show notes. And the NGFS, oh man, this gets great. This this, this is what I'm saying. This goes deep, man. And and I I love how 
transparent these fuckers are. And I should also say, there's going to be a lot of cursing here today. So maybe bring inside the women and children. <laughs> I'm serious. This is going to get, this is going to get heated today. And this is going to be very long and this is going to get somewhat boring, but trust me, I listened to three days worth in, in just under 48 hours <laughs> of this. And yes, it, it is really boring, but I crunched it down to, you know, probably just over two hours here, maybe under two hours. And so you're getting a micro dose, compact, high dosage of what you need to know to stay ahead of what's going on with these central bankers trying to rig the entire world. Seriously. Um, this is like your vegetables that you don't want to eat, but take it in segments. Like, you know what? I would say, listen to 30 minutes today. It's probably going to be really boring. Take it in. Listen to another 30 minutes, another day. Take it in. Another 30 minutes, another day. Take it in. 30 minutes, another day. Take it in. But once you, once you get through this podcast, you will understand exactly where this is all headed. And this, this is going to fall right in line with our ESG episode that we're going to be releasing this weekend. It's crazy how all this works. It's crazy. And, and it's even crazier that these fuckers are transparent and they leave everything on the table and they don't try to hide behind anything. It, it's almost like they, they dare people to report on it, but they kind of know that most people, <laughs> most journalists won't report on it because they're in their pocketbooks, Right. They just won't report on it because they won't. So it takes the independent journalists like myself to go report on it, to keep them honest, to inform people. And my hope is y'all will spread this newsletter. You'll spread this podcast. You'll share with everybody you know. You'll, you'll share it on social media. You'll share it on Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is that you use it and share it with everybody. So that way people are informed. So that way when the next downturn happens... And we'll talk about that here at the end of this all, because I'll give you what I think is really going on here, right? I'll give you my interpretation of what I think is really going on after watching all of this coverage. You can kind of decide for yourself, right? But ultimately, what they're trying to do is create this global virtual conference. And they're trying to talk about how the financial sector can take immediate action against climate change related risk. Climate change. <laughs> oh man, climate change. You're going to hate it so much here in the 2020s. This is their next thing. If COVID-19 was their phase one, climate change is their phase two. And this started back here in 2017. You had eight central banks and supervisors establishing the network of central banks and supervisors for greening the financial system, the NGFS. These are the fuckers that created the Green Swan Conference back in 2017. It was called One Planet Summit. And then now they charge a membership <laughs> to get in. And it spans across five different continents. It's fucking beautiful how these guys do this. And the whole purpose of this network is to help strengthen the global response, which is required to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement and to enhance the role of the financial system and to manage the risk and to mobilize capital for green and low carbon investments in the broader context of environmentally sustainable development. Yeah, it's greenwashing. 
at best. At best. What I'm trying to say is, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to say that there is no such thing as climate change. That's not what I'm trying to say here today. I actually don't even really think that that is even an importance to what they have on their agenda. I don't think that they actually even give a shit about that. That's what I'm trying to say. I think that is an excuse for them to continue their manipulation with the currency and their manipulation with controlling the entire world and their manipulation with central banking. That's what I think this is really about. I think this that I think climate change is just an excuse for them to continue this charade. That's what I personally think. I think they're just using this as an excuse. And the more you listen today, you'll see you'll start to understand that that's exactly what this is. Okay. So, before we get into any of that, I want to do a prologue. And for people that don't know what a prologue is, I'll explain. It's an opening to a story. It gives you context, gives you some background details, offers some earlier story that ties into this kind of main one, right? It's going to it's gonna give you some information and it's, it's likely you don't understand like what's going on with central banks or even where it even started, right? So there's somebody by the name of Nomi Prince. She's really, 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 really intelligent. <laughs> and she used to be the managing director at Goldman Sachs. And then she went rogue and she went on this like terror and she just like started cutting up all these central banks and just basically, you know, just went rogue and, and, and talked about, you know, how central bankers ruined the world and, and how their hidden alliances are, are driving all this, you know, economic change and the bonuses and bailouts and backroom deals and, the, the corporate mugging of America. And yeah, she's, she's, she's out there, man. But she's written some amazing books. One of them is Collusion, which she talks about here in this talk. I'm going to play it for you. It's about a good 25, 30 minutes. But this will at least get you to understand exactly where all this came from. Like what started all this, right? And this is a good prologue for what we're about to talk about today. This will give you a good base understanding. Um, if you haven't read like The Creature from Jekyll Island or even her book Collusion, um, this will give you a good kind of base understanding of, of what to expect and, and kind of get you up to speed with uh, what we're going to be talking about today. So take a listen to Nomi as she explains how these central bankers rigged the world. Pilot 
washed his hands and sealed his face. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guessed my name. But what puzzling you is the nature of my game. Stuck around St. Petersburg. When I saw it was a time for a change Killed the saw and its ministers Anastasia screamed in vain I rode a tank, held a generous rank When the blitzkrieg raged and the finest thing So it's the summer of 2015. I've written, um, as some of you may know, read some of my other works, some disparaging things about the financial system and the Fed and private banking and Wall Street and so forth. And I got an email from the regulatory department at the Federal Reserve. Um, now, the Federal Reserve is supposed to be the regulator of all of the banks, but yes, they also have a department that does this specifically. Um, and they say, do you want to come and talk? We're, um, they have these annual... Uh, conferences for three days that are just the internal people from the Federal Reserve, uh, the IMF, and the World Bank. So they're not sort of public media things. They're not really handshaky photo op things. They're, they're sort of internal. They take place at the Fed, and supposedly they uh, address the topics that are of concern at that time. So the topic of concern at that time, or at least the one for my segment of the three days, was why isn't Wall Street helping Main Street? And so I, after I asked them if they really meant to have me there, as opposed to someone who um, actually supported uh, Wall Street. Um, they said, yes, we want you there. We want to hear your opinion. So I uh, go to Washington, 
And I speak after Janet Yellen, who's the former chair of the Federal Reserve, spoke and addressed everyone. And this is all internal. It's all central bankers from around the world. Um, and she speaks to the room full of them and says, we're in a position now where things are, are fine. The banking system is healthy. Everything's all good. All these policies have worked. And I'm looking around the room. I'm sitting kind of at the side. And she's in the front. I'm waiting to talk. And there's this feeling of we don't quite feel we're on the same page as you, Janet Yellen, um, from, from some of the central bankers in the room. Um, and they tended to be the central bankers, as I found out, from the smaller central banks around the world that aren't sort of controlling um, or influencing or depositing into the financial system lots and lots of money. They're sort of on the sidelines having to sort of deal with the ramifications. Um, but anyway, she says everything's fine. Then a couple people get up from the Treasury Department um, and they, they're even more enthusiastic about how, how, how great all of the last eight years have been. There's been more regulations, everything's fine, banks are good, economy's healthy. Um, we've got this. And then this cardinal talks. Um, he had just been at the Vatican and he comes and he doesn't talk about monetary policy or finance or anything like that. He just looks at the room full of bankers, kind of addresses the more senior ones, and he says, do you remember the thing about helping the poor? And again, sort of uncomfortability in the room. And I stand up and I say, look, uh, the question you have for me um, for this conversation right now today is why isn't Wall Street helping Main Street? So I just say, look, it's really simple. You never made them. You never required anything from these banks that you have subsidized for at that time eight years at all. You never said, well, if we give you trillions of dollars of fabricated money, that you have to forgive some student debt, or you have to restructure some more mortgages, or you have to give an additional amount of small business loans, or you have to set aside a bunch for infrastructure development. We, we, we never told you to do any of that. Um, so I said, so what, what, what did you expect? Um, but the narrative then and now is that what the central banks have done, in particular the Federal Reserve, is that it's helped the economy. The economy is all fine. Um, and, and I think we know that it's not really all fine. It's fine for the people who got the money. So let me step back, you know, as, as it is. So let me step back. Um, so what's a central bank? What's, what's, what's the real point? And there are many of a central bank. Um, in honor of Yanis's book coming out, a central bank is kind of like a parent who has money or can find money when a sort of bad child <laughs> or sort of child that's running amok, um, you know, drinking too much, doing drugs, ruining the car, etc., keeps coming back and asking for money to go out and do the next thing. Um, and the parent keeps on saying, yeah, okay, fine. So you need money for this. You know, you shouldn't really do drugs. Yeah, okay, I won't. Can I have money for something? No, here's some more money. You really shouldn't drink. You shouldn't drink and drive. You shouldn't do any of the things you're doing, but you know what? We're going to keep on providing you the money to do that. And, and that's how the central bank has behaved. Because what the Fed has done over the last 10 years, and particularly in the wake of the financial crisis, is to provide a blank check effectively, an unlimited sum of money, in an unregulated manner by people that are unelected, um, sort of four and a half trillion dollars, just the Fed, that's a very big number, um, which is still on offer right now, to have the banks become healthy again, 
to enable them to have money again to continue doing what they were doing before the financial crisis, to use that money to buy their own stock, to use that money uh, to enhance their own CEOs and chair people, and not to use the money to do any, things that, any of the things that were at the crux of that question that day uh, to help Main Street. Now, it's not their job, but it is the Fed's job, theoretically, to regulate the banking system. And so when the banking system goes off the rails, um, you know, when, 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 a, when a kid is going off the rails, and it's the job of a good parent to turn in and say, look, that's not okay. Um, things need to change. You can't continue to be like that. But that's not what the Federal Reserve did. Instead, they came in and they said, don't worry, we've got this. Now, the Federal Reserve was created in, um, in 1907, where a bunch of speculators rigged the copper market, and they got caught out. They made some bad bets. They were starting to lose money, but they were attached to banks that had real people's deposits in them, and those real people got very concerned that the top of their banks were losing money. And they started walking into the lobbies of those banks, and they started standing outside in the pavement, and they started walking on the sidewalks, and they started getting beaten up by cops at the time, and there was like mass chaos in New York because these banks had bet wrong, they had people's money, and people wanted their money out. And it looked bad, it was cosmetically bad. And J.P. Morgan, who was the head banker at the time in the world and in New York, was concerned, because to an extent, all the people were involved in all of the banks. The, the, the more sort of powerful people at the larger banks, but it just didn't look good cosmetically for anyone else. So he goes to Teddy Roosevelt, who was the president at the time, he says, look, I can fix this, I need some money from the Treasury Department. So the first bailout, of the banking system happened in 1907. It was $25 million. It was the Treasury Department giving the money to J.P. Morgan and saying, look, you just figure it out. Just, just fix it. Help the banks. You don't help the banks. Whatever you do, just fix it. Make it go away. And he took the $25 million. He gave it to his friends. He let other banks fail. Um, and at the end of that, he was still concerned going forward that you know perhaps if there is another panic like this for whatever reason, it was kind of stressful to have to figure out what to do. And what if the Treasury Department doesn't have the money? And so he and, and other bankers, um, he was dead by the time that the Federal Reserve Act in 1913 came out, but at the time and over the years from 1907 through 1913, discussed how to get together and create a Federal Reserve system, an insurance policy, a parent for the banking system so that they wouldn't have to ask the president for money or ask the Treasury Department for money or count on Congress to vote to give them money. There was just a, a place that could literally create money that they could use in the event of an emergency. And the way it was sold to the people of the United States in 1913 when the act was passed by Woodrow Wilson um, was kind of like how it's being sold now. History does repeat. And the way it was sold was if the Federal Reserve exists, and there's a problem on Wall Street, and money needs to go out to the farmers in the middle of the country or the people building up the western part of the country, and it's not flowing west, which is kind of how a lot of that money was going. There's a place, and there's 12 banks within the Federal Reserve System located in San Francisco, in Dallas, in Richmond, in New York, and so forth, that'll sort of handle the problems and make sure that money goes through and it's liquid. There's a lot of water terms in finance. It goes through to wherever it needs to go. And that was how it was sold. Um, the other way it was sold in what's in the Federal Reserve Act is that it's supposed to maintain a stable financial system, be the regulator, ensure there's something called full employment, which has changed in sort of what that really means over the years and over time anyway. Um, and that inflation or the level of price increases is, is kept at a level of, of 2%. 
And the other thing it was supposed to do is in an emergency, and there was a clause in the Federal Reserve Act, it was the lender of last resort. In an emergency, it would be there to provide money for the system. So in 2008, there's a big emergency in that all of these banks have effectively ruined the system. They've lost a lot of money, they've committed a lot of crimes, and the entire global economy is suffering because of that. Because countries like Mexico and Greece and, and even uh, areas like Puerto Rico, regions like Puerto Rico, were all doing okay before the financial crisis. They were balancing incoming and outgoing money in terms of their own areas. Um, and when the financial crisis happened, it had a very, very quick effect everywhere. Because the US banks were connected to banks everywhere. The Federal Reserve, because the dollar is the reserve currency of the world, was kind of the, the parent of parent central banks throughout the world and had to ensure that money throughout the world kept moving. Um, and so where collusion comes into play, um, and it's not about Russia, um, it's not about Mueller, but it's, it, it's, it's about the fact that the, the crisis was actually so much bigger than it even appeared at the time that it required the major other central banks in the world to work together to ensure there was enough money in an emergency for the financial system to continue to operate and for it not to close its doors, um, for, for ATMs not to stop giving money to depositors, and all the reasons that were sort of given to the world as to why it was necessary for all this money to be fabricated and given to the financial system. Um, and so the European Central Bank, which is the head central bank of, of the uh, European Union, the Bank of Japan in Japan, to a lesser extent, the Bank of England in the UK, um, and basically the G7 Central, central Bank, Banks, all kind of worked on this same policy, and they're all sort of like taking direction from the Federal Reserve, because the other thing the Federal Reserve didn't want to have happen, and U.S. major banks didn't want to have happen, is for money to leave the U.S. And so when the Fed started making money available at very cheap interest rates, or zero percent, which is like no percent, um, to the banking system, which, you know, now it's a little bit higher than that, but effectively, globally, it's still 0% on average to the banking system. Um, it, was, it was partly a way to try and just fix the problems in the books of these banks that they knew were still going on. Um, and and in or if you give enough money to a problem at some point, um, it's, it's going to look like the problem is not necessarily solved, but that it, you don't have to worry about it anymore. It's like if you're at a blackjack table and you're losing hand after hand after hand in some casino and someone next to you is giving you 100 bucks for the next hand and 100 bucks for the next hand, eventually you're going to win a couple hands. Um, and if you're given enough money, you can play at enough tables that at some point you're winning somewhere. Um, and that was one of the points of what the Federal Reserve did in a policy that had never been, to the extent it currently exists, and to the extent it has grown over the years, been so much of a subsidy for these banks. So when I talk about trillions of dollars here and here, it's kind of, they're unimaginable, they're, they're big numbers. Um, but if you think about it like this, the amount of money, the trillions of dollars that have been manufactured to help the banking system in an emergency situation that has now apparently gone on for a 10-year emergency, that's a really long emergency or that's a really unhealthy financial system, um, is about $21 trillion. Now, today, now it's been more and less and stuff over the 10 years, but, but, but currently, um, that's what's been fabricated and is still like on offer to subsidize the financial system. Now, that is about the size of the GDP of all the goods and services of the United States. 
That's basically like saying there's two United States out there. There's one that's kind of here, and then there's one that's subsidizing the financial system. And when the Fed has these meetings, and these central bankers get together, like, like in the slides there, and all these places around the world as they do, in Davos, Switzerland, and in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and all the places they get together to discuss whatever the problem of that year happens to be and however it is they're going to solve it. The net result over the last 10 years is whatever they're talking about, there's a credit crisis in 2012 in Europe. You know, there, there's, there's problems with Greece in, in, in 2011. There's issues with um, China in 2016. Whatever it might be, they get together, and the solution to it all is we need to continue um, to the euphemism is print more money. They're not really printing money. It's, it's more sophisticated. They're electronically providing money. Um, and they're not requiring anything in exchange for it, and they're not asking for it back. So it's like you go to your ATM machine, and you think you have a balance of $100, and all of a sudden you have a balance of like a million dollars. Right? That would be nice. It would be nice if that happened. I mean, if you took, you know, trillions of dollars and you divided it out, not even necessarily per person, but, you know, it, per things that could be useful to, to growing the real economy, um, that, that's a healthy sum. And what happens in finance, what happens in banking, um, is if there's a certain amount of money available, it allows for other things to happen as sort of byproducts of just existing. And so if there's $21 trillion of money available that has gone into buying bad mortgage assets from the U.S. banks or buying certain very selected corporations uh, in, uh, bonds in the European Union or stocks in Japan, all of these things are choices that these central banks make as to who to help, and then the other side of that is who they're not helping. And so the result of having all this money go into certain pockets of countries and certain pockets of financial assets is that there's a greater inequality that, that, that comes from, from just that fact. So while regular people aren't getting interest on their deposits, um, these banks are getting cheap money with which to buy their own stock. So if you look at just the big six banks in the United States because of this policy, um, they have been able to among other things, have a record quarter this past quarter. Um, they also saved an extra $3.6 billion collectively because of the tax cuts they needed so badly. Um, they have increased all of the pay for, for their CEOs substantially. Um, and they have not really raised the interest rates on people's savings accounts. In fact, a regular person who's, let's say, has $1,000 of a deposit at a bank like J.P. Morgan Chase or Wells Fargo or Bank of America or Citigroup is probably paying about 20 bucks a month for the honor of keeping their money with these banks, for which they're receiving close to nothing in interest, which means they are paying 24% interest to banks to keep their money. Now, banks are paying almost nothing on interest to receive much more money than that from the Federal Reserve. So when they go and they buy their own stock, um, and that looks good for their shareholders, they have an option to not buy their own stock and to use it to basically give to their customers to increase their, you know, reduce their fees, increase their deposits, restructure some of their loans, wh whatever could be done if this was a, for a totally different system or if the Fed made them um, do what was the problem behind that question, if they made Wall Street help Main Street. And when I say Wall Street, I mean collectively banks throughout the world. It just so happens that the Wall Street banks were the sort of miscreants that the sort of the, the mouth of the financial crisis, and they continue to do what they've been doing since then, just from now a higher height and with more subsidies. And 
as I said before, that has ramifications throughout the world. I'm going to go very quickly because I am um, throughout the world now because I uh, wrote Collusion out in the world. Um, I traveled to different regions and I specifically picked those regions because they re represented um, different results of this particular policy. They were either collusive with the policy, they tried to be and couldn't, they had political problems because they tried to be and couldn't, um, and smaller countries had to deal with helping their own economies and, and, a, and a policy that worked for them internally, but then there was flack from the US and so forth, and so they, they just represent different things. Um, Mexico was the first place I went to I spent a lot of time there. These, these were not the first times I went to any of these places, um, but to, to, to sort of dig into this. And I had a breakfast in Monterrey, Mexico, which is the third largest, in, it's in, sort of in the industrial city in Mexico, one morning after, soon after the Janet Yellen experience in Washington. And I was sitting next to a former senior member of the Central Bank of Mexico um, who had left in 2008. He actually left as the crisis was the beginning. And most countries didn't think the crisis was going to become the crisis. And I have a lot of this documentation in the book. Most of them thought this, this, this you know, this is a blip, this is bad, but we're going to weather this. We have nothing to do with these banks. You know, this is, this is not us. But then, of course, as the banks started hurting the economy and money started getting put into different places, it started to creep into all of these other countries that have relationships with the U.S. that had to deal with the fallout of, of a basically a recession or a depression here. Um, and so he said that at the time they were talking, they were, they were looking at sort of Washington um, and hoping that they would pick a different direction from what they did. So instead of providing money and sort of a reward um, for all the bad things banks had done, you know, sort of maybe beat them back, do something to them, regulate them, make it sort of better for the future. Um, and and uh, they actually, some of the individuals, I have a whole character um, list in the book because you, it's hard to keep track of all these people. They float around from country to country. There's a lot of names in the book, so there's a little glossary of names. Um, but, but this one person I'm, I, I thought was very uh, critical to the meaning of the giving money in the face of a crisis, Guillermo Ortiz, who was the head of the Central Bank of Mexico when the crisis hit. Um, and he went up to Washington and he said to Ben Bernanke, who was the chair of the Fed at the time, look, um, if you are going to do what I think you're going to do, then that's going to ultimately decrease confidence in the system, not increase it for the regular people, and that's going to ultimately you know, come back to haunt you. And Ben Bernanke, of course, completely ignored him, did not even mention him in his memoirs. I had to actually buy the memoirs to make sure the electronic copy I had that did not mention this guy's name or any of the central bankers that warned um, that there could be ultimate problems from this particular policy in the very beginning um, were, were completely ignored. So Ortiz actually winds up not being reappointed to run the Central Bank of Mexico in the next time he's, he's up for that position because he was openly critical um, of what the U.S. was doing. He did go on the circuit. He is still involved in sort of the um, he actually is an advisor now to the Dallas Fed. So these people do sort of recycle, but he did try to warn um, as to what would happen. And the second head of the Central Bank of Mexico, Augustin Carstens, started out saying, and that's why he got the position, I, I agree with Ben Bernanke. He, he became sort of a public mouthpiece down south um, for, for, for Bernanke. And, uh, and at some point he realized this was going to be bad for Mexico. So they tried to follow the same policies as the Fed. They made money cheap. That increased inflation in Mexico because in Mexico, inflation actually was related to this policy because the central bank was closer to actual people than the central bank here is to people in our country. Um, and ultimately, he got disillusioned as well. Um, and he wound up quitting. Well, he quit once Trump was elected. But he wound up quitting um, and going to run the Bank of the International Settlements, which is... Um, 
which is in Europe, which was created um, ultimately to be the central bank of central banks and that it has all the information. It looks at all the reports. And for the most part, for decades, it was created in 1931. It was a cheerleader of any policy any Fed would do, any ECB would do, any, any central bank would do anywhere. But even it became critical, and its reports now have gone from um, being very comforting to being very critical of a policy that's basically dumped a lot of money into the market, required nothing from it, um, dumped a lot of money into the stock market, been that sort of fuel for, for very risky policies without any sort of request to restructure. Um, and now there is this shift in the world, and this is actually the positive part of the book, um, of countries like Mexico, of countries actually even like China, who've actually questioned this policy of the United States and are trying to develop alternatives where if money is being fabricated, it's at least being fabricated for real growth and real infrastructure and real development and real people and real bridges and real trains and so forth, which ours is not. Um, I spend a lot of time, probably too much time in Washington, talking to um, people of Congress on, on both sides of the aisle about financial issues. Um, and, and my, I, I don't work for a bank, obviously, anymore, so I'm, I'm really talking um, about this from the perspective of just sound policy, just, just sensible things, and it is not sensible to reward bad behavior. It's not, it's not a good economic policy ultimately, and that's what we're really dealing with over the last 10 years. And the fact that it also creates inequality and it reduces the amount of savings people get and reduces what pension funds can be worth in the future, and then all, these, all this blame um, gets stirred up at the sort of bottom of the economy, and that's kind of going back to the video. All this, so you blame the immigrants, blame terrorists, blame workers, blame, blame those you know, lazy people in Greece who weren't working hard enough to like, uh, maintain a balanced budget there. Just, just, just outwardly shove the blame where there has been this massive trickle-down narrative policy that is not being pushed by the Republicans or the conservatives or, or whatever, any political party. It's being manufactured by central banks. They have larger checkbooks today than they've ever had before. Um, and, and they work together to basically promote that. So in Europe, um, where, where I went all over as well, uh, it was a real choice to not help Greece, obviously. And there was a power choice in that. But it works even worse. It looks even more foul when the European Central Bank actually has surpassed the Federal Reserve in terms of fabricating money over the last 10 years. So Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve is at four and a half trillion. European Central Bank is somewhere between five and five and a half trillion. And they choose every day where they look at the money that they're continuing to manufacture, 30 billion to 60 billion euros a month. They choose where that goes. And they choose not to put it into Greece. And they choose not to put it into small corporations in, say, Portugal or Italy. They choose to put it into Germany. They choose to put it um, in, in, in Belgium. They choose to put it where they want to. But it's not like this is money that, are, that, that has been um, earned. This is money that they make up. And, and, and the thing that just really gets me about all of this work and just all of, you know, so going all around the world, it's a very dour subject. Um, it, it's really hard to make it um, light. It's not light. Um, but what it is, is it's, it's, it's just so frustrating. It'd be one thing if there wasn't an avenue to create money when money was needed in an emergency situation. But not only is this avenue been sort of rejiggered to be so, so generous, to so, so subsidize the financial system, um, it just makes all the problems that, are, that it creates that much worse. 
because that choice happens every day. It's a choice that the Federal Reserve is sitting on $4.5 trillion of subsidies that it provided the banking system, including $1.5 trillion worth of mortgages, two and a half or more trillion dollars of U.S. treasuries, it has bought and given money to the banking system in return for buying those assets cheaply. And that debt's not getting used anywhere. The treasury bonds aren't getting used anywhere. We're supposed to borrow money to do things. That's not what's happening. It's sitting on the Fed's books. The mortgages that were still toxic 10 years ago, um, some of those assets are still sitting on the Fed's books. Um, and, and, and corporations that are failing in Europe and stock is, yeah, companies that are not doing as well in Japan, there is money for that, but there's not money for sort of the basic um, foundation of the economy. And, and that's where this is just such a crime. So some people ask um, you know, why I picked the word collusion, and I'll finish with that and open it to you for questions. But collusion, anyway, so, so on Google, the, the, um, if, if you look at different definitions for collusion, um, it's basically it talks about you know, a secret or an elite sort of group of people that are committing fraud or criminal behavior or whatever. And one of the words is also deceit. Um, so I look at it like this isn't a elite group of people. Um, the people at the head of central banks, they're not elected. They're, they're generally appointed. They sort of go back and forth between the private sector um, and each other's central banks, depending on who they are and how high they are. They pop out and they get lots of money for making speeches, um, as, as one does when they come out of places like Washington and sort of, you know, sort of richer uh, cities throughout the world. Um, and, the, and they manufacture money. Um, and then in all of the narratives about the manufacturing of that money, they talk about how it's helped with growth. And it hasn't really helped with growth by definition because it is sitting on their books. It's, it's not even like logical um, to assume it has trickled down somewhere into growth. Yes, stock markets are higher, but if there's an availability of money to one group of, of, of institutions to use to buy their own stock, and banks actually have to ask the Fed if it's okay to buy their own stock, and the Fed has to say either yes or no, and it always says yes, well, then they buy their own stock, and it goes up. So that, that's not an indicator of health. That's just, that's just an indicator of money. Um, and and, and so, so, so I find that that's kind of the, the biggest deceit in all of this. And, and the, the deceit is that this policy, this 10 years of emergency policy, has somehow funneled in to the major economy. And I'll finish on that with, I was on CNBC on Friday, and I don't know if you have any saw this, it's, um, it was cut short because Trump was talking about something in the beginning of the segment, and um, so it was a short segment, um, and it was me and some hedge fund guy, and um, we were talking about wages. And the topic was, not unlike Wall Street not helping Main Street, but it was sort of like, why aren't wages going up um, as much if the stock market is up so high? Like, what's going on, what's the deal with that? Um, and wages had increased by 0.1% last month. That would be like nothing, right? This, now, the, the top six banks put in record quarters over that period of time. They, they bought lots of their own stock. Their stock went, lots of other things happened. Um, so, so we're talking about this, and, and I'm explaining that this, this money didn't go into wages. It's gone into stocks. And the guy on the other side is saying, yeah, but Apple just announced an $100 billion stock buyback, and they announced higher bonuses. And I'm like, well, bonuses and wages are just so not the same thing. Um, bonuses are like this portion of stock goes into your pocket, and wages are like the thing you actually have to count on to live on, and it hasn't moved. Um, but the thing was, he got the last argument. So the way it worked on the media was he said something first. He was asked a question first about this. I responded something like what I just told you. And then he basically said, no, you're wrong. And that's how the segment was cut. 
right? And I don't do that. You know, I'm sitting there. You know, I wasn't. You know, you're in a chair. You're looking at a camera. You know, you you have no control over or any of that. And then when the segment was actually put out on Google, online, it it said something like our wages going up, and that was the title of the segment. So 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 also there's a lot of other factors in terms of continuing to spin this narrative that don't sort of bear out um, in the real data. So, so ultimately, um, what my book is about is looking at how this collusion of fabricating money has impacted um, countries throughout the world, who's been doing what when. Um, every single chapter in every geography kind of starts with the crisis in 2008 and goes through to, to today. According to the Green Swan Conference, science says the world is warming and economics says that this will lead to lower productivity. Population migration, stranded assets such as fossil fuels, and more importantly, stranded capital and land. Global conflicts and reductions in the quality of life and possibly the end of our species. But all of this is due to arrive many decades in the future if at all. Nevertheless, we see signs of this today in asset prices, as these reflect forecasts of long-term cash flows and productivity. These asset prices movements will guide capital and investment in the future, and we are engaging with people today in an effort to understand what to expect and what to do about it. This is why they are gathered today here at the Green Swan Conference. We're gonna to listen to Jeans Weedman as he introduces the introduction of this swan event.
Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure for me to speak at the GreenSwan 2021 Global Virtual Conference. Tackling the climate crisis is one of the greatest challenges of our time and requires changes throughout the entire economy. Its urgency increases with every minute that passes. The economist John Kenneth Galbraith wrote, in economics, unlike fiction and the theater, there's no harm in a premature disclosure of the plot. It is to see the changes just mentioned and others as an interlocked whole. Since I'm an economist too, and neither a novelist nor a dramatist, there's no reason not to disclose the plot of my speech, all the more so as disclosure plays an important role in it. First, I would like to give you in my capacity as BIS chairman of the board of directors, a brief overview of the BIS activities in this field. Then I will explain why transparency matters when it comes to greening the financial system and managing climate change related risks. And finally, I will elaborate on what a central bank and specifically the euro system should do to protect its balance sheet from climate related financial risks. As regards the greening of the financial system and the support of central banks in addressing climate related risks, the BIS has done pioneering work. Its climate change and green finance related activities span a variety of business areas. Its analytical work comprises conceptual considerations regarding the role of central banks, as well as policy oriented research output or statistics related efforts. The latter means, for example, detecting and closing data gaps in the field of sustainable finance, an important task which is carried out by the BIS Irving Fisher Committee. BIS economists are also increasingly active in research on climate related issues. Just one of a number of valuable contributions is The Green Swan, a joint publication with Banque de France. Last year, it attracted a great deal of attention, not least because of its thought provoking title, but mainly due to its profound analysis of the new challenges. Climate related financial risks have been on the agenda of several BIS meetings starting in 2016 when central bank governors talked with guest speaker Lord Nicholas Stern. Since 2018, the BIS has participated in the network for greening the financial system, the global alliance of central banks and supervisory authorities advocating a greener financial system. The bank's activities in the field of policy and regulatory issues concern the BIS-based standard-setting bodies like the Basel Committee. Furthermore, staff contribute to the climate-related work of the hosted associations like the Financial Stability Board and the International Association of Insurance Supervisors. And in its role as a provider of financial services to central banks, the BIS has launched two green bond funds one of which is denominated in US dollars and the other in Euro. With these investment vehicles, the BIS is helping central banks to incorporate environmental objectives into the management of their own funds and supporting the development of green finance. Ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to decarbonizing our economies, carbon pricing is certainly the key tool, giving important incentives to consumers, producers, inventors, and investors. Yet, it may not suffice to drive the necessary transition to net zero on its own. 
The high speed required to limit global warming to the Paris targets may necessitate additional measures. The financial system has a pivotal role to play in this regard, as it will have to channel trillions of dollars or euros into private investments needed to transform the economy. Without doubt, financial market participants form expectations on both factors, the likely pathway of carbon prices and additional measures to gauge the implications for asset prices. However, these expectations are conditional on the information available. Thus, in terms of channeling financial means to their most efficient uses, sufficient information can be regarded as a precondition for the needed reallocation of resources towards a greener economy. The dynamic growth of green finance in the last few years has demonstrated how eager private investors are to decarbonize their portfolios. However, greening the financial system goes beyond strengthening the market segment of green finance. Both climate change and the transition to net zero may cause financial risks, especially for companies in the real economy. By extension, these climate-related financial risks will also affect the financial actors that provide those companies with funds. It is thus in the interest of banks, insurers, and other investors to recognize climate-related financial risks and to adjust the risk management properly. The science is clear and has been communicated for the past 30 years, and still we're not moving in the right direction. I don't get depressed. I get angry. What are the systems that determine the state of the planet? This is about us. It is about our future. All is not well with our planet. As we increase our pressures on Earth, we are now crossing irreversible tipping points. Nature is being degraded at a rate and a scale that is unprecedented. When we emit CO2, about a third has ended up in the ocean. There's no sign of any wildlife at all. Based on the seven and a half million deaths, we have already crossed the boundary as far as aerosols are concerned. As we manipulate the planet's climate, we're literally playing with fire. Are we concerned about fighting the climate crisis? The window is still open for us to have a future for humanity. We still have a chance. What we do between 2020 and 2030, it will be the decisive decade for humanity's future on Earth. Human health, animal health, and environmental health, the three are so much linked. We've covered the whole planet with knowledge. The future is not determined. The future is in our hands. It's a remarkable time to be alive. You may never look at the world in the same way again. So they're literally throwing everything out there. Um, they have money that they put into documentaries on Netflix. They have money that they put into uh, television shows on mainstream media. Um, they have money that they're putting into like CBS uh, 60 Minutes. Um, they're, they're doing everything they can to, to push this narrative that climate change is going to cause the next uh, recession. Um, and, and they're basically saying that uh, there are risks involved. 
And the risk is a physical risk, which is damages due to warmer temperatures, rising sea levels, droughts, floods, storms. Uh, these are the costs of climate change. And they're also saying there's transition risk, costs associated with the transition to a low carbon economy, uh, depending upon government policy, including pricing, regulating, and timing emissions. These are costs we impose on ourselves to avoid physical risk. Uh, these risks sometimes reinforce each other and sometimes go in the opposite direction. For example, withdrawing from the Paris Accord reduces transition risk, but increases physical risk. Uh, scientific discoveries such as the fracturing of the Greenland ice sheet increases both risk. So they're basically going to be doing exactly what they did with COVID, where it's going to be not only um, setting out more money to these central banks, right? But these central banks are going to be colluding together and issuing out, and, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because a lot of these fuckers here <laughs> really explain what they're going to do. But a lot of them are trying to basically put together what they call in an optimal portfolio construction. And this is where it gets really fucking, ugh. basically what they're trying to do is get carbon pricing and regulation um, to near net zero emissions by mid-century. And, and the only way they know how to do that is by controlling the money. Um, right. So they're basically a pipeline of money that they're going to turn on and off like a spigot on, on a water. Right. And so they're saying if you meet these uh, carbon levels with these net zero um, uh, emissions. Right. And so if you're if you're hitting your goal, you're going to get more money from these central banks. If you're not hitting your goal, well, guess what? You're not getting any more money. So if there's some countries out there like, let's say, Australia, who is totally carbon, you know, uh, a carbon producing uh, country, then you're you're not going to be able to move forward. And so what's happening right now is you have these fuckers here that are all colluding with each other. And they're basically arguing, well, you know, that's going to be up to their government, whether they want to implement those policy. But us as central bankers have to force them to implement that policy. And so right now I'm going to play for you um, something from the main, I guess, which I would call them, these are the main people that control everything, right? You have Yi Gang. He's the governor of People's Bank of China. You have Jerome Powell. He's the uh, chairman of uh, the Federal Reserve. You have Augustine Karstens. He's the general manager of the Bank for International Settlements, who no one controls. He answers to no one. You have Christine Lagarde, who used to be at the IMF. Now she's the president of the ECB. And then you have uh, Francois uh, Villeroy. He's the governor of the Bank uh, of France. And so I'm going to play for you what they're saying, because what they say is just asinine, right, compared to what everybody else is saying here. So listen to what they say. It's it's ridiculous. Take a listen. Yeah. 
I mean, this is a direct link. I mean, isn't it kind of like, you know, not to be inelegant, but peeing in the face of the victims? It's it's way worse than that. It's way worse because if you look at the power that the, that the cartel banks now have, William Blackstone was the one who came along in 1765, and in the commentaries of England, he said, the king can do no wrong. And by that, he doesn't mean, as a matter of fact, the king can do no wrong. He's simply saying, this is a statement of complete power of a monarch. It's plenary power of a monarch. And the banks now enjoy that power. They can do no wrong. Literally, they can do no wrong. They can commit crimes with total impunity, which gives them, it makes them legally more powerful than the government. So in other words, the sovereign in the U.S. is supposed to be we the people. First three words in the Constitution, right? It's not we the people. The sovereign authority in the U.S., the sovereign power of the U.S. is a criminal global banking cartel, period, full stop. Thank you so much, Gillian. And it's uh, it's really lovely to be, uh, to be here with you all, with you in particular, Gillian, but all my colleagues and friends uh, as well. And uh, I'd like on this occasion to really thank uh, the BIS, the Banque de France, uh, the IMF and the NGFS for putting this together and uh, bringing uh, all those experts and non-experts together under uh, your leadership, uh, all of you moderators. Of course, there are lots of experts on the panel now. Gillian, I would like to start with quoting a sentence which actually triggered my decision at some stage to leave the private sector and to join the public sector. And that was a sentence that was pronounced by President Chirac back in 2002 at the Johannesburg Fourth Summit. And he said this, he said, our house is burning and we are looking away. To me, that was a critical moment and it encouraged me to drop the very comfortable life I had as a member of the private sector to join the public sector. And to your point, our planet is burning. And we central bankers could look down on our mandate and pretend that it is for others to act and that we should simply be followers. I don't think so. And I'm saying that because I believe that if we did, we would be failing on our mandate and that we would be missing in action. Now, why do I say we would be failing on our mandate? Because we would be failing on our mandate if we did not account for climate change when it comes to understanding and measuring inflation. Clearly, greater economic volatility has an impact on inflation. We would be failing on our, on our mandate if we do not see that climate change could impair monetary policy transmission because it is likely to induce financial instability if it is not taken into account. We would be failing on our mandate if we did not measure the impact that climate change has on the assets that we hold, on the assets that we buy, and on the collaterals that we have in stock. And as opposed to that, I think we are squarely in our mandate when we alert key players 
in the economy. And I'd be very happy to come back. I, I know I should not talk for too long, but there is a giga climate test that I would like to say a few words about later on, if you allow me and come back to me. But we would also be squarely in our mandate when we guide banks on climate related risks, as well as environmental risks. And when we conduct supervisory stress test in 2022. We are squarely in our mandate when we incorporate climate change related sustainable and responsible investment principles in our non-monetary uh, policy portfolio on a euro system basis. And we're squarely in our mandate when we include climate change and environmental risks and impact to our strategy review and draw full consequences of it in the form of a roadmap that I hope we will adopt. We are squarely in our mandate when we upgrade our models, which we are doing already. And we are squarely on our in, in our mandate when we run our climate change center, which will soon be headed by a new recruit uh, who will be joining on June the 15th. I want to introduce her, Irene Emskerk, who will be joining us. So in other words, we have to commit now we have to deliver fast, and I think we have to implement decisively. Um, and I'm also curious, I'd like to speak up about the issue of inflation and how you are or are not modelling this. Um, because we had a fascinating um, piece of that, a piece that was about to be published on the FT's platform, Moral Money, an intervention from Larry Fink of BlackRock, suggesting that climate change is going to make it much harder to measure inflationary pressures going forward or anticipate them and could essentially um, accelerate them, including not just climate change, but the transition um, for climate change. I'm curious about your reflections on that as well. On, you, on your first question, uh, Gillian, my, my hope is very much that we will have a broad consensus on the part of all members of the governing council that climate change has to be taken into account, has to be factored in throughout the whole range of our activities. So whether it is in terms of, uh, as, as I said earlier, modeling, and I'll come back to your question on inflation, whether it's about uh, the monetary policy framework, whether it's about uh, the, the, the purchases uh, programs that we have, and obviously one thinks of the corporate uh, um, bond uh, purchase programs, we, we need and hopefully we will collectively as a group deliberately take that into account. And we need to obviously be... Uh, served by good data, good disclosure, appropriate common standards. And I'm delighted that the Commission is moving extremely fast because I hope that the data that they will provide, the non-financial disclosure requirements that will apply to uh, the uh, financial statement of 2023 for most corporate accounts in Europe, will actually help us a great deal in actually tailoring without any regard to the size of what we do. Eh? I don't think that this is the point, but tailoring uh, the kind of uh, you know, decisions that we make in relation to all that, not to forget supervision, which is going to be impacted as well, which I regard slightly separately because the SSM is a little bit uh, separate from the, the, the sort of central bank side of the ECB, but it will also have an impact there as well. On, on the measure of inflation, I think that, you know, our teams are working really hard to appreciate um, the impact. And it's really a question of, 
in a way, discounting a risk that is often foreseen as being sort of 30 years ahead uh, and making sure that we can characterize it, identify it into the sort of three years projections that we are used to and which determine the medium term that we, we do take into account. Now, there's a lot of, you know, heavy, heavy uh, hitters uh, in, in the modeling world who are looking at that, but I'm sure that we will be able to do that. Uh, I think that it will be far more difficult, actually, uh, to factor in the impact that environmental and governance and social aspect of the ESG uh, commitments uh, will be going forward. In, in relation to the climate change, stricto sensu, as applied to inflation, I'm sure we'll get there. Well, thank you. Well, I'd like to turn to Governor Yigang now. And um, really, I'm very curious to hear your views on this. Um, you were People's Bank of China, were the founding member of the NGFS, and you gave a very striking speech um, about two months ago where you laid out China's policy towards this from a central banking perspective. In that speech, you mentioned that you were supporting the European Union in its green taxonomy and appear to echo many of the thoughts that um, Madame Lagarde, Governor Lagarde has just shared as well. Um, so I'm curious, can you tell us what you're doing at the People's Bank of China to fight climate change? And do you think you have a mandate to do that? Yes, uh, thank you, Gilin. Uh, I think uh, right now, uh, uh, People's Bank of China, uh, in China, the most important thing we are doing is uh, to uh, tell the general public how important uh, green finance and the climate uh, change risk is, so that they would like to have a household, general public, uh, firms, enterprise, and also ordinary people to understand the very deep implication of climate change, so that everybody have the urgency uh, of doing something, whether uh, to change the production style or change their lifestyle to reduce uh, carbon emission. So that uh, I think uh, besides the very technical thing that uh, the central bank can do in green finance, uh, we spend a lot of time to do the general uh, public education of the urgency, as uh, Christine Lagarde just said, that uh, our planet is in danger, uh, is in fire. So, so that uh, I, I think that's very important. Once the uh, general public and uh, also the uh, firms, enterprise, uh, and the media, they understand the urgency, uh, they would uh, very much support to do the uh, carbon uh, reduction, uh, whether to how to change their production mode or uh, change their lifestyle to uh, uh, reduce uh, carbon emission. Uh, I, I think uh, in this regard, we are very closely uh, cooperate with the international community, especially the central bank community uh, in the G20 framework. And also we, together with the Bank of France, we uh, jointly establish uh, NGFS, so that I think uh, uh, the climate change issue need international cooperation. 
uh, we would like to cooperate with our central bank community and uh, the financial community to design the financial tool to help the green transition. Transition uh, can create a lot of uh, uh, from the demand side and the supply side. And also it can change the inflation picture in the future. Because uh, if, if in the past, most of the carbon emission is free, and uh, right now we try to uh, have a quota and also try to restrict the carbon emission. Uh, there is a premium of green uh, energy so that uh, we have to have the model and how is the green uh, premium and how to encourage people to use green energy versus the traditional fossil fuel energy. So that uh, that would change our uh, inflationary uh, forecast and the picture. And also in terms of economic modeling, uh, our primary task is to try to have a smooth transition, which means that given what you have right now, for example, the coal generating facility and also the traditional fossil fuel uh, uh, transmission and uh, power generating uh, facilities and uh, how you make a transition from right now to a green energy uh, network and a green energy production mode. That is very complicated. Uh, for example, you have to realize that uh, what would be the trajectory or parameter given you already have a lot of uh, bank loans and financial assets in those uh, traditional facilities. And then you need uh, to restrict and uh, gradually reduce the traditional uh, energy uh, emission. And also at the same time, gradually build up the clean energy system so that in all this operation, you need a, a model a calculation and a design for the smooth trajectory. At the same time, for the central bank, you have to look at what would be the impact on uh, inflation, on the uh, pressure, uh, price pressure. So that's that's what they are doing. Well, thank you. Well, certainly comments from Larry Fink of BlackRock, which I think have just gone up on the FT website about how climate will intersect with inflation are very thought-provoking. I'd like to now turn to Augustin Carstens from the Bank of International Settlements, who is in the happy position of being the only person on the panel who doesn't have to answer to politicians and doesn't have to answer to the public and voters um, or actually run a monetary policy himself. Um, although, of course, previously you did in Mexico, so you've had plenty of experience of that. And Mexico is one of those countries which is in a very interesting position right now, policy-wise, in terms of climate policies. Um, but I'm curious, from your position of overseeing the system, trying to herd cats in the central banking world, how do you evaluate what is going on right now? Because it is a quite remarkable shift from where central banking was just five years ago. Well, thank you very much, uh, Gillian. 
Uh, well, to, to be sure, I have a very demanding bosses and very very well politically oriented bosses, and I have four of them here in in the panel with me. Uh, so in any case, I mean, it's great to have them as bosses, and uh, we try to do our best here at the BIS to facilitate and uh, complement whatever they are doing. Uh, I mean, I think, I think from a central banking point of view, uh, I, I, I celebrate, and I, I think this has been confirmed in the in this conference, is that we sort of have made or completed transition of, uh, of of questioning if central banks should be involved or why should central banks be involved now to, to slowly go through to the next step and it is how to do it. Uh, there, are, there are many different dimensions uh, in which central banks should be involved in this. I think they obviously encompass uh, all the range that you have been talking about, from monetary policy to financial regulation and supervision, even in a sense a little bit of what Gigant uh, is doing in China of uh, uh, giving guidance or, or facilitating the debate uh, with, with society. Of course, each central bank has its own mandate, has it, its own limits, and so on and so forth. And I also want to say uh, uh, that, that, you know, this, this is a progression in central banking, and in many of the, the debates that have been out there, uh, probably the change that uh, is, should be expected is not as strong as it, it, it appears. I mean, for example, this debate of monetary policy and climate change. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, climate change, as, as, as Francois has said, uh, with, with Spain and electricity, it, it happens constantly. I come from a country, uh, I was governor for eight years, where we had a, probably the country with the most hurricanes uh, in the world. And uh, it, it, in the time I was a governor, the number of hurricanes increased dramatically. And given the geography of Mexico, we get hurricanes from the Pacific and for the Atlantic, and sometimes at the same time. And sometimes even we had an event where we had two hurricanes and, and an earthquake, although the earthquake was not necessarily related to climate change. Now, of course, central banks, we need to deal with the circumstance. Uh, what is a clear manifestation? The clear manifestation is that it changes relative prices. Uh, and uh, basically, it affects some sectors, it affects certain commodities, it affects certain, certain services. And what central banks have to do is to prevent precisely those relative price changes to transmit themselves into inflation. We also need to assure that the price system is working adequately and that it can send signals to the real sector uh, for them to reallocate re resources. Because at the end of the day, what is needed in this thing of climate change is to have a, re a massive reallocation of, of resources to, for, for, for the economies to be better prepared to what is coming. I think what really is a game changer is the fact that now there is a, a, a clear consensus that this type of phenomena will be with us for a while and that will not disappear. And therefore, it really, in, in terms of, of, of uh, doing monetary policy and planning our activities ahead, it's important to start incorporating them into the type of scenarios that monetary policy and central banks will have to face uh, as we move into the future. No? Uh, many of these events are uh, unpredictable, but then there again, 
other aspects that are more predictable. Now, of course, we 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 need to to support the investigation. We need to 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 support the research, and hopefully, what also can happen as a result of this collective action is that the price signals and the research that is done really mobilizes the resource allocation changes, so to mitigate the impact of 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 global change. So. Uh, so I think this is essential, and again, this is something that central banks have been doing and will continue to, to do. Now, of course, it's a major change, the fact that this is sort of a permanent shock and it will be coming for, for, for the future. And I'm sure that central banks will express this in the way they do it, in their mandates or in the interpretation on their mandates, also to some extent echoing uh, the demand of their own societies, as, as we have been seeing. Uh, in the in the financial system, going back again to this aspect of, of allocation of resources, the financial system is key in reallocation in allocation uh, resources. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, that's the main function of the financial sector: how to use savings today uh, to be used for investment and uh, move those resources into the future. And meanwhile you know, uh, uh, industrial capacity services uh, can be generated. In this process, uh, uh, it, 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 it would be unconscionable to think that we should not incorporate climate change. Uh, uh, why? Because it will affect the need of, uh, of, of resource reallocation. Uh, and therefore, this also, I mean, it goes to the heart of the essence of financial markets. And therefore, I think that we need to consider it. Uh, there are many issues that have been discussed about, uh, that I share pretty much about uh, data, about uh, a disclosure. Uh, but but I, I would say at the end of the day, we, what we need to assure to is to have uh, integral markets uh, for them to do adequately its job, markets that are transparent, and even think about contingent markets that today they don't exist, and that make it difficult to do this as a, this resource reallocation that will be needed as a result of climate change. So, I mean, I see that uh, here at the BIS, we, uh, as you say, we have the benefit. Um, I mean, in in Mexico and, and in Spain, the way you you see you you. You exemplify the 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 <laughs> you exemplify my role here. In when I was governor, I was a bullfighter in the bull ring. Uh, now I'm a spectator. I can sit <laughs> in the stands and see the bullfights from there. Even though now bullfights are not very ecological, I have to say. Uh, but nevertheless, now with the benefit of being in the stands and not being in the in the bullfight ring. Uh, I see that uh, very good things are happening, and uh, we try to identify what, uh, what where the gaps are or where we can really support this process, because I, I think it's an essential process. Well, I'm going to ask you in a second about supporting the process, um, but before I do, given that you are a spectator, not in the bullring, do you ever worry that the shift towards climate um, finance issues and climate issues may end up in any way creating a backlash, a public backlash against central banks or undermining their credibility amongst the politicians in some areas. I mean, already we've seen, say, in America that it is not clear that um, 
you know, large parts of the political spectrum don't think that climate, that central banks should be talking about this kind of thing. Are you concerned about a backlash issue? Well, at this stage, I'm more concerned about uh, being, as uh, Christine mentioned, being mission, missing in action. Uh, I mean, it's obvious, I mean, the fact that we managed to that we're having this debate right now is a, it is a testament about the importance of the issue. And it's a testament that a, a society is demanding a public officials to mind this issue. Uh, at this stage, I think that we need, we, we still have a lot, we have a lot to contribute to frame the, the, the problem and, and, to, and to find solutions. And the real trick will be to find the adequate balance of where the central banks fit in. As many of my colleagues have said, we cannot do everything. As a matter of fact, our guiding principle should be, we should do whatever the instruments we have at our hand allow us. <laughs> uh, if, if we overpromise, uh, saying we will solve it, but we don't have the instruments, uh, that would be wrong. Uh, but I'm sure that the all, all, I mean, the, the, the debate I see among central bankers is precisely how to establish the right, the, the right commitments, taking into account the instruments that are granted to you when uh, your authorities or your legislature or whatever assigns you a mandate. That is the, the, the that that is the, the the adequate relationship that needs to hold there. Right. Um, and just to turn to the question about the private sector and the financial stability mandate, which everybody on the panel agrees that they have, and perhaps everyone agrees is the most immediate area where climate change issues do impact what central banks do. Um, do you support at the BIS the call for mandatory TCFD reporting? And from your perspective, do you think that um, financial institutions around the world are ready for that? Well, in principle, I, I would say yes to the first uh, question. I mean, again, uh, financial markets, the main ingredient of financial markets is information. And uh, uh, as uh, my colleagues have been saying, we're dealing uh, with a very difficult topic at hand. And the more we know, uh, the better we will be able to do our job. We cannot do all the research. We cannot do all the forecasting that Francois related to if we don't have the information. We also have uh, trying to look after having a transparent in integral market we need also to be able to link the characteristic, for example, of a bond with the final objective. The final objective is how uh, that firm where you are invested is going to undertake actions that will affect at the end of the day uh, climate change. That link needs to be established to have transparent, trustworthy markets. And uh, that requires a lot of information. <laughs> so I think I think that that the more we have it, the better the better structure it is. The better uh, I think that also will provide a, a, a level playing field. And 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 uh, well, on the private sector, I see a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, I think that uh, that in many different aspects there has been. A, a very, very interesting uh, push by the private sector and uh, even in some aspects inviting the public sector to do more. And uh, I think we are moving in, 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 in that uh, direction. I, I think what is important is to establish a virtual cycle and interaction between 
private uh, and public sector and uh, and i i'm very 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 hopeful that this virtual circle virtual circle will come along right well thank you well i'm going to ask you a quick question before i turn to um francois and um, which i will also ask to francois which is that you talk about the need to have a level playing field in the private sector and yet what we have at the moment is the european union moving along with the green taxonomy which is essentially a top-down system um, created um, by governments and then we also have the american um, ecosystem moving really towards a slightly different tempo more of a bottom-up um, type of framework are you concerned about fragmentation in the reporting standards um, do you think it's possible to get a coordinated reporting and transparency approach Does that worry you, given that you're overseeing the entire um, central banking world and financial system, or looking at it anyway, not overseeing it? <laughs> well, I mean, I I think the key to to, to answer to your question is 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 cooperation, uh, and as a matter of fact, we are very used to do that. Uh, if you think, for example, about the Basel principle, the core Basel principle on bank supervision, uh, among others. Uh, one of the key motivators for it is precisely to establish level playing field and so on. Uh, so I think that we need to agree those uh, uh, and, and hopefully at some point, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that between the different fora of interaction, uh, the G20, the FSB, even the Basel Com Com Committee, Uh, uh, and of course, uh, uh, with the help of the NSFS and so on, I think that we have different instances of coordination that at some point would pan out with uh, at least these minimum standards where we have, uh, where we can claim that there is, there is a, a, a fair amount of level playing field without really uh, inhibiting or prohibiting countries to move further in, in any direction, as it happens today with, with financial regulation. So you'd like a green Basel accord, would you? That be the kind of thing that you <laughs> well, It would be great. It would be great. <laughs> well, one problem with the Basel accord, of course, was no sooner did it come out that all the financial sector started arbitraging it in various creative ways um, and started creating all kinds of you know, innovation in the financial system. Thousand islands in the sea I see a thousand people just 
Augustus Carstens was literally talking about there when they were talking about the arbitrage is basically the simultaneous purchase and sell the same asset in different markets in order to profit from tiny differences in the asset listed price. It basically exploits short-lived variations in the price of identical or similar financial instruments. So these green bonds, yeah. That's why he wants that arbitrage. The other thing that she mentioned was the Basel Accord. And you're probably wondering, what's the Basel Accord, right? So the Basel Accords were developed over several years, beginning in the 1980s. The BCBS was founded in 1974 as a forum for regular cooperation between its member countries on banking supervisory matters. Now, the original aim was to the financial stability of improving supervisory know-how and the quality of banking supervision worldwide. (laughs) I love how they always have the best, (laughs) you know, yeah, we're really doing it for everybody. Bunch of bullshit. So Basel I was the first Basel Accord, and this was issued in 1988, and it focused on the capital adequacy of financial institutions. So the capital adequacy risk was the risk that an unexpected loss would hurt a financial institution. So categorizes the assets of financial institutions into five risk categories, 0, 10, 20, 50, and 100%. So banks that operate internationally must maintain capital equal to at least 8% of their risk-weighted assets. This ensures banks hold a certain amount of capital to meet obligations, right? Sounds simple enough. Well, they release a second Basel Accord called the Revised Capital Framework, 
but better known as Basil II. And this served as an update of the original chord. It focused on the three main areas that minimum capital requirements held. So this divided the eligible regulatory capital of a bank from two into three tiers. The higher the tier, the less securities a bank is allowed to include in it. Each tier must be of a certain minimum percentage of the total regulatory capital and is used as a numerator in the calculation of regulatory capital ratios. Now, a lot of this is kind of right, really, really going in deep into banking. Now, in the wake of the Lehman Brothers collapse of 2008, the ensuing financial crisis, the BCBS decided to update and strengthen the accords. Now, it was considered poor governance at the time and risk management and inappropriate incentive structures were over leveraged because the banking industry had reasons for the collapse. But in November 2010, an agreement was reached regarding the overall design of a, that's right, third Basel Accord. Now, this continuation of the three pillars, along with additional requirements and safeguards, requires banks to have a minimum amount of common equity and a minimum liquidity ratio. Now, it also includes additional enhancements for what an accord calls systematically important banks or too big to fail, right? And it got rid of tier three capital considerations. So the terms of Basel III were eventually finalized in December 2017. However, its implementation has been delayed due to the impact of COVID-19. And guess when the reforms are now expected to take effect? January 2023. Guess when that now is supposed to be released? That's right, 2023. So this all falls in line with why uh, Augustus Karstens got all like giggly. Oh, yeah, we want another accord. <laughs> That, that's why he was all giggly and like, oh, yeah, give me another accord because he knows too big to fail can continue on and possibly he can get a sweeter deal. Like this is why they use terms like that is to confuse regular people. And so they think that we will not look this up. We, we won't go do the research like this is why they do that. And, and there's no one to tell them, you know, these people aren't voted in. No one fucking voted for him, right? Like, no, no one, no one's gonna tell him to get off of whatever seat that they're sitting in, right? We can't vote him out. This is just the society that we live in. We can't do anything about it. This is why. This is why it's so inhumane. The fact that they're doing this. Okay, now we're gonna listen to Jerome Powell because this actually surprised the shit out of me. I was expecting Jerome Powell to go in there and kind of play ball with the rest of them. Like, go in there and say, like, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. But surprise, surprise, Jerome Powell did the complete opposite. And I was completely shocked. Take a listen. You got to, you got to, you got to say. Tell her, tell her, tell her that I still am on the road. No, 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 I won't be coming home. Make sure 
about the jobs crisis right now because 16 million Americans have filed for unemployment since these restrictions went into place due to the virus. The St. Louis Fed says we could see 47 million Americans losing their jobs. Where is your prediction of a bottom? Well, we just don't know. I've been listening to your program this morning, Margaret, and we just don't know the path of the virus. That's going to determine how long the shutdown needs to take place and ultimately how many Americans lose their jobs and how quickly we can get them back to work when the economy turns back on. So there are wide ranges of estimates of how wide or how high the unemployment rate is going to go. But it's all driven by the virus and how effective we are in the healthcare system is to catching up and to controlling it. So I guess the answer to that would be yes. Uh, in fact, we're co-chairing the uh, sustainable finance working group of the G20, the Treasury actually, is the Treasury Department is co-chairing that with, I believe, the uh, People's Bank of China. So uh, to the extent there's a, you know, there'll be collaboration there and, and uh, the Federal Reserve will be playing a, a supporting role consistent with our mandate in that working group. Remember though, that the, the overall uh, response of, of uh, the United States government to uh, climate change and particularly as it relates to collaborating with, uh, with other nations is, is not a question for the Federal Reserve. It's really a question for the government. I understand completely. So tell us then what the Federal Reserve is doing on the climate change front, because obviously you have a mandate which is different from other regions, most notably Europe. Um, you also have emerged from the last few years with an overarching government that's taken a very different approach towards the climate change challenges under the last administration. So what is the Fed's approach at the moment? Um, the Biden administration has indicated it wants to play catch up and even try to lead in the fight against climate change. How is that impacting what the Federal Reserve is doing? Do you have a mandate to take the same kind of measures that um, Christine Lagarde has been talking about in the European Union to fight climate change? Um, to what degree are you embedding it in your own modeling about where the economy is going? And do you see any future path for in incorporating it in, say, uh, monetary policy? Sure. So uh, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to start, I guess, by uh, saying that there's no doubt that climate change poses profound challenges for the global economy and increased uncertainty for the financial system. Significant challenges lie ahead for all of us. And what's needed is a sustained global response, uh, which will require bold steps and decades of sustained effort by national authorities, international groups and the private sector. In the United States, uh, our society's overall response to addressing climate change will have to come from elected officials who have sought and received a mandate from the voters. The impact of climate change will be far reaching. It will bring challenges and opportunities as the economy evolves and adapts. And it's essential that there be a broad and durable public consensus to support our society's broad response to climate change. 
So you ask about the Fed. So the, the role of central banks will vary across countries, as you as you suggested, depending on a lot of factors, including particularly our statutory mandates and the scope of our responsibilities. Uh, at the Fed, we see our role as an important one uh, that is uh, tied tightly to our existing mandates. Our mandate hasn't changed. We haven't been assigned a uh, a role in setting overall policy. We don't have a secondary mandate to support the economic policy of the government, as many uh, European banks do. So we view climate-related financial risk as a risk that falls under our existing mandates relating to bank supervision and financial stability. And what we're doing uh, at a high level is we're undertaking a broad plan of careful analysis, significant public engagement, and great transparency regarding our role in addressing climate-related financial risks. Um, you asked particularly about monetary policy, and, and I, I guess I would uh, address that like this. Um, there's no question that climate climate change has the potential to to affect the structure of the economy over time. For example, uh, people have mentioned inflation, but but it's it's deeper than that. It's it can affect the industrial organization of the economy, labor market dynamics, productivity, the financial sector. All of those things can affect uh, employment, inflation, and interest rates over time. Over time, so um, anything that that anything that you know. Uh, can affect the outlook of the economy can, in principle, affect monetary policy. And so climate change would certainly qualify that. I, I would say, though, that today, today, climate change is not something that we directly consider in setting monetary policy. We, we are quite actively uh, exploring exactly what uh, climate change's implications are for uh, our supervisory, regulatory, and financial stability responsibilities, which, which I can say more of if, uh, if, if that would be desirable. Yeah, well, I think uh, um, I'd be curious to know more about that. I mean, I'd be curious to know what you're expecting the private sector to do, and perhaps we can come back to that in the second part. Um, but I'm curious, so just to clarify, you don't think you have a mandate to act as a cheerleader to awaken public consciousness about the climate change issues in the way that Governor Yi Kang has described his role at the moment within China. It, you don't think you have that role within America? I guess I would say it this way. Central banks clearly can play an important role in building data and analysis to understand the macroeconomic consequences of climate change, to quantify the risk of the financial system through scenario analysis, for example, and to ensure the resiliency of the financial sector to climate change. We will communicate all of that publicly, but we, we are not and, and we do not seek to be uh, climate policymakers as such. Uh, we, have, we have a very specific mandate and precious independence, and uh, which we think serves the public well, has served the public well. And I think uh, um, we we should avoid trying to fill in public policy where the where governments haven't done so yet. That's not up to us. But nonetheless, I, I do think our work can indirectly help educate the public on on what's going on, and and also I would think inform other parts of the government in in the actions that that they are assigned to to assess. Right, right. And just one other last quick question before I turn to Governor um, François Villard de Gaulois. I'm curious, um, Mark Carney said yesterday that there is a need to create new training and awareness amongst regulators and central bankers. And essentially, he's calling for central bankers to be sent back to school to learn about climate issues and how it impacts on them. Um, I'm curious, given that the Federal Reserve is now 
joining the NGFS, a member of the NGFS, which it wasn't um, a year ago. Do you anticipate that you're going to have to have retraining inside the Federal Reserve as well in terms of how to imagine these issues impacting the core monetary policy mandate that you have? So I, I actually think all of us, all central banks and international organizations are building institutional capacity. By the way, so are all of the major financial institutions doing the same. They're building internal intellectual capital, uh, human capital to to learn how to assess the risks and how to ultimately how to manage them, how to disclose them, all of those things. And we are certainly doing that at the Fed. And, and I would I would just uh, take a second and uh, give a lot of credit to the NGFS for what it's done in helping us all build intellectual capital and institutional capability around stress scenarios and in other and many other respects. So yes, we're 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 engaged in that activity and, and others are as well. Does the Federal Reserve plan to conduct climate change stress tests anytime soon? And will you embrace the NGFS's methodology for looking at these issues? Because of course, you know, we heard earlier Augustin talking about the hurricanes and how that had changed debate. Um, I very keenly remember the Dallas Fed coming out quite unexpectedly a couple of years ago during during the Trump administration and saying that events like the Houston um, weather incidents had created a need to start looking at climate risks. And so when even the Dallas Fed is saying this in terms of evaluating financial sector risks, you know that the food is changing. So I'm curious, will the Fed follow um, the French Central Bank and others in doing climate change stress tests? We, uh, Jillian, we haven't made a, a decision on what to do about uh, climate scenario analysis, and I'm not gonna be announcing one here today. Uh, but I will say that uh, what's apparent, though, is that if you look across central banks and actually what uh, large regulated financial institutions are doing, climate scenario analysis is emerging as one of the principal tools for assessing the risks of climate change to the financial risks and highlighting risks. And so, uh, you know, as we do our work here, many, many important decisions lie ahead of us, it, it, some of them in the near term and we'll announce those as appropriate. But I would say that there's uh, there are a lot of reasons to think that climate stress, climate scenario analysis uh, can contribute in a very positive way to this. I mean, one thing that it, that it clearly does is it raises awareness within institutions and, and within, uh, the, you know, within our own thinking of how these paths may play out. It also illustrates, it, it can be used to illustrate what different uh, sets of government policies might might bring uh, bring forth in terms of results for climate. So there's a lot to like about uh, climate stress tests, and we we've benefited from carefully studying what the ECB did, what the Bank of England did, what what uh, uh, the Banque de France and the ACPR did. It's all it's all uh, informative, and I you you can just understand that we're carefully studying all of that. We're also in uh, significant discussions with the, particularly the larger financial institutions are, are all doing different kinds of uh, of climate stress analysis. And we're putting that all together and thinking about how how uh, we might move forward with that. But again, haven't made a haven't made a formal decision on that. But nonetheless, there's there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to like about this as a potential tool. Um, and does the Federal Reserve have a position on whether it's time to introduce TCFD reporting or some form of climate change reporting in corporate accounts and banking accounts? Yeah, so decisions about uh, in, in our 
in our world here, the uh, our highly capable Securities and Exchange Commission has authority over disclosure. So that's a decision for them and for the administration. But let me let me just say, at a high level, it would be hard to overstate the centrality and found fundamental foundational nature of better data and better disclosure. Uh, I'll read you a quote from um, from our own Federal Advisory Committee. These are these are banks that we regulate and supervise, and they said it so well. I'll just quote it. The development of uniform data standards and metrics for disclosures will be critical to adequately identify and compare climate risks across businesses and sectors. It's as simple as that. So um, if we need to have the data and it needs to be uh, uh, disclosed in a manner that is that that is helpful in understanding uh, the risks of climate change. And so that's a that's a tall order easier to say than do. And the question of, of when to make it mandatory as opposed to when to focus, obviously what we're headed toward, the ideal will be um, you know, standardized disclosure that is highly informative and consistent across jurisdictions. And I, I very much agree with the, uh, the sort of analogy to the uh, banking uh, supervision and regulation. That was quite a process to go through to get all of the major economies around the world, all the economies on the same page on on banking regulation. And it took some time, but it happened. That's what needs to happen here. Disclosure needs to be consistent. It needs to be useful. And the the time at which you make it mandatory, I think, is an is an issue for the in in, in our jurisdiction for the uh, for the SEC. But again, the the importance of it can hardly be overstated. So you would support a Green Basel Accord? Those are those would be your words, not mine. What, what what I'm suggesting is that that in getting to TCFD has has been highly useful. Fifteen hundred companies using it, many trillions of dollars worth of assets under it. It's a great foundation, but it's not an accounting system. Uh, and, and, and you know the, the disclosures that are coming out are, are useful, but they're not consistent. And we have a lot more to learn. For example, about for banks. What data can you get from the the companies that you lend to? Whose responsibility is that data? Who should be develop that data? Exactly what data should you get? So, uh, I think there's a process to be had, and and you know, it, as you know, this is what the FSB is working on, IFRS is working on it, the G20 is working on it. We're all working on this. This is this is a and deserves to be a very much at the top of the list of things to do is to get to a disclosure system that is, again, useful for investors, again, to Augustine's point, so that the financial markets can do their job in allocating capital for governments so that we can we can understand the implications of, of, of our policies and for, for financial institutions, and by the way, non-financial institutions too, uh, they can understand what their activities are, what they mean for climate change and how they can live up to the commitments that many of them are now making across the world to get to net zero, you know, to get to Paris consistent levels of uh, carbon emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Um, well, I'm curious, um, if you look at, say, TCFT adoption, there's a very stark um, discrepancy. You've got very high levels of TCFT adoption in the UK, um, extreme enthusiasm in Japan, um, almost any financial institution that moves in Japan appears to have adopted it. Um, and yet the U.S. is lagging dramatically behind relative to the scale of its financial sector. So I'm curious, when you look with your supervisory hat on across the U.S. financial system, 
Do you think it's prepared for the type of changes that could be coming down the road pretty soon? Or do you think the last four years of differing policy approaches means that there's actually going to have to be a lot of catch up in the US in the domestic financial institution to prepare for this? Because although you've got the big banks and Wall Street banks who are exposed to European regulations having done a lot, um, you know, certainly I see tremendous discrepancy amongst smaller financial institutions. And, you know, I'm often being asked, what exactly is TCFG by smaller financial groups um, in America? So I'm curious about your views on that. Well, uh, to your point, um, there's a great deal of interest and momentum on addressing climate among U.S. companies, and that goes for both financial and non-financial companies. If you're a publicly traded large company, as you mentioned, particularly one that might be active abroad, this is a high focus for you. If you look at any annual report, if you listen to the, the things that they're doing, many of them are making commitments. So we see that, uh, and I, I don't think, I think that process is, is moving along very well. They're also uh, you know, managing under the watchful eyes of, uh, of investors who are uh, with a strong and growing focus on, on ESG issues. Many large uh, U.S. Uh, financial institutions have, have committed to net zero by 2050. Many have signed up for the, uh, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero Pledge. Um, you, you're right that this for now is principally a focus of large financial institutions and the regional financial institutions too. And that's where our focus is at this moment as well. We, we're heavily engaged with those who are, uh, who, who are actively involved in this. And uh, I think that's appropriate, uh, for, uh, appropriate place for us to be working now.
So one of the things that surprised me about that talk was Jerome Powell really didn't say that he was going to force policy. And he probably knows that he can't, right? And he's always said that. He's always said that. He said that during the Trump you know, presidency. He says that even now during Biden's presidency. I think he's only backtracked like maybe once, right? But even now, facing all this pressure from the BIS, uh, European Central Bank, um, like, and even with all that, he, he sits there and tells them, yeah, uh, we like our independence. Uh, and I just found that fascinating that he's just not budging on that. Uh, even with all this, you know, I don't know what happens behind the scenes, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know, like, does he get a memo afterwards? You know, does he get a death threat? <laughs> like, who knows how these people play ball, right? But I would imagine, like, somebody's going to talk to him after this, uh, or maybe he gets replaced. Who knows? But the fact that he wasn't able to say, like, hey, I'm going to make it happen somehow, some way, um, was was really interesting. I thought it was completely fascinating. Uh, it gave me a sliver, a sliver of hope that maybe possibly somewhere deep down in him, he's a patriot. Maybe. I know, I know that's, that's tough to hear, you know, but you know, he is an American, right? He has to have American values right? Like somewhere in him, he has to believe in the constitution. I mean, I, I know he's an evil central banker, but I don't, I don't think he grew up without these American values. Like I just don't see him selling out his country like this, but may, maybe he is, maybe he is. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we'll see what he does when he gets back. Um, but the fact that he wouldn't give him an answer was completely shocking to me. Um, so the next thing I want to play for y'all, and, and this is, was really surprising. Um, Cause every, every panel that you listen to sounds like the exact same panel. <laughs> they literally all say the same thing, right? They, they all, they all say the same thing. Like, Oh, we, we need to invest for impact. We need to invest for, charitable planetary goals. We need to invest to hedge climate risk. Um, we need to adapt. We, we need to form, uh, we, need, we, need, we need to reach out to firms. We need to reach out to governments. Uh, we need to reach out to individuals. We need to adapt to reduce as much as possible uh, to further reduce the damage for climate change because you know this is gonna cause a recession. Um, and if we don't do this, if we don't print out more money, <laughs> then the emissions are just gonna pollute the air um, it's ridiculous. Right. Um, so they, like every panel was like this and they had like, I want to say like maybe 15, 10 panels, something like that. And they all were, were talking about the same thing. And lo and behold, <laughs> there were some outliers, right? There are some people who actually were like, fuck that. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to we're not going to go with the agenda. And I was that was completely shocking to me. Um, that was really shocking to me. Like somebody like Fiona Reynolds, she works for PRI. Uh, somebody like David Wood, uh, he works for uh, Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Like 
These are people that actually said the complete opposite. These are people that actually were speaking for individuals at this place. And I, I, I it was, it left me wondering like, what <laughs> can they do that? <laughs> uh, are they going to get invited back? Um, but no, they were actually speaking for individuals out there. And I thought it would be, you know, good to hear what people who have common decency and common sense um, and aren't just going with the narrative that these other fuckers are dishing out. Right. They're, they're actually trying to say, OK, I see that you aren't going to give us a choice when it comes to more printing and, and this this whole like you know, green initiative for, for finance. Um, well, at least let us negotiate. <laughs> at least let us give you some data behind it. And that's what these people were doing. So I'm going to play for you back to back. It's probably about a good 30 minutes, but it's rarely informative. And it tells you exactly that there are some outliers out there that actually, you know, they might be part of this kind of, you know, central banker committee, but they have a small, somewhat of a conscience, <laughs> right? Uh, I was shocked. I, I didn't expect this. I, I was like, whoa. Well, I was like dozing off, you know, and I was listening to it. And then all of a sudden I was like, whoa, whoa, rewind, rewind. What did she just say? And I was like, whoa, is she saying something completely different than everybody else? And then you saw other people like in the panel, like cross their arms, you know, they're all on Zoom calls, like, and it's like, whoa, like she's not supposed to be saying that. <laughs> uh, is she going to get a memo? Is she going to get a death threat? Like what's going to happen to her? And then lo and behold, she sparked another person to say something else completely different. So I, I was shocked. I just couldn't believe it. So take a listen to both these individuals as they speak out amongst these green swan pieces of shit. that Ben Bernanke at the peak is doing $85 billion a month. Um, we are now back to normal normalization on GDP. We're above 
trend on retail sales. Um, funny, last year at the Economics Club, around this time, I said that a V recovery was a fantasy. I couldn't have been more wrong, but this is all about risk reward. I understand why the Fed and Congress did what they did at the time. I think it was the right decision on a risk reward basis. But when the facts change, you have to change. And the facts have changed dramatically since then. And yes, I don't think, I can't find any period in history where monetary and fiscal policy were this out of step with the economic circumstances, not one. Fiona, do you agree with what we, uh, we have heard so far? What are your thoughts on this? I just add that um, I, you know, I work with investors, so work within the investment sector. And so part of the work that we've been doing at the PRI is all about how do you get investors to incorporate environmental, social and governance factors into the investment process. Now, when it comes to these issues, I think that part of the problem is that historically, really climate change and then issues to do with people and human rights have really been managed quite separately and governed by different policy frameworks and addressed by different communities of practice and managed by different tools and really treated in isolation. And I think this is also being reflected in the really in the ESG space where historically there's been a tendency to really silo issues. So you think about the environmental issue over here and how you're dealing with it and you put climate as an environmental issue and not so much looking at the social issues. So one of the problems with, um, with the ESG is that that's really the approach that a lot of investors take, where you need to look at an issue from a holistic point of view, and the social aspects are often missing from the way that investors are thinking about these issues. So they, you know, they think about climate, they deal with the largest emitting companies in the world, and they think about my aim is to get the emissions reductions from this company so that we can transition to net zero. Well, yes, that's exactly what we need to do. But in the meantime, we've got to think about the human side. And, and, and I think this isn't helpful. And I think that um, I'm hoping that through work that we're doing and others are doing that this is changing. But I also think that from this perspective, COVID-19 has woken investors up to a lot more of the social issues. So I think it has clearly demonstrated that if you don't have healthy people and you don't have a healthy planet, then you're not going to have a healthy economy or, or healthy businesses, that things are interdependent on each other and interconnected. So I'm hoping that this starts to get investors thinking about the this in a more holistic way. So we've spent a lot of time in the investment community, for example, talking about stranded assets, but we're always talking about stranded assets from a physical point of view. We're not talking about it from the point of view of people. And people can be stranded assets as well. People are big assets and they're going to be stranded. It's not just like the coal that has to be left in the ground. It's the um, impact on people. And so we really think that poorly managed the transition to a net zero future could result in a lot of stranded people, stranded communities, stranded, um, stranded workers. And it needs to be really considered in everything that's done. So we're strongly supportive of the just transition to a net zero economy agenda and something that we've been trying to build into the work that we've 
that we've been doing um, on climate change so that investors don't just think about it in terms of the, the physical aspects. I think the other aspect is that if we don't bring people along with us on the transition to net zero economy, then we're unlikely to succeed. And whether that's whether you're thinking about a developed or developing economy. So I live in the UK, I'm based in London, but I'm from Australia. Australia hasn't yet committed to a net zero uh, target for 2050. One of the reasons it hasn't is because we're a fossil fuel, you know, uh, economy in terms of resources. And therefore, there's concern about the fact that people um, won't vote for climate action because they're worried about losing their jobs. But there's a simple way to, to solve this problem when you're in a very rich country, and that is, well, let's have a just transition plan for the country and let's not lose, leave people behind. We shouldn't be leaving people behind. This is more difficult, obviously, in developing countries, and this is where we need uh, the more wealthy countries to provide solutions uh, uh, as well. So, as I said, I think that from the investment perspective, it's making sure that we take a holistic approach to the whole issue of climate and not just a one-sided lens. Thanks. Thanks, Fiona. I like, I like your point about people matters. And that's something that we forget quite a, uh, quite a lot when we go about discussing these issues. And last but not least, uh, David, can you tell us from your experience, why do we need to tackle redistributive impacts? Yeah, uh, alphabetical order means I just have to say I subscribe to everything that came before me. And uh, I work on Investors too with Fiona and sort of prompted by the Principles for Responsible Investment. Um, so that's going to be my lens. Uh, and I'd like to say up front, I don't think that's the most important lens. In fact, I think that's necessarily not the most important lens, but investors are a window into some of these challenges. And structural transformation, the just transition is an issue that investors have to take into account like everybody else. Um, so I'll just give three kind of, well, uh, manifestations of what I think are the negative distributional impacts that we have to wrestle with. Um, one is the shift from coal-fired power plants to uh, wind energy. And in the U.S., that means moving kind of up from the Midwest into the northern Midwest. It turns out those jobs, which require uh, people to leave their communities and move into new communities, are being offered on terms that are much more precarious than the previous jobs. They're not necessarily unionized. Uh, they don't necessarily have the health and safety records. Um, and unless we ensure that precarity is addressed in the transition from one kind of energy to another, the social incohesion that will result, I mean, apart from the sort of ethical concerns that, are, that should be obvious, the social incohesion that result will make structural transformation impossible. So that's one thing. You just have to make sure that the new jobs are as good as the old jobs, and that comes with a lot of different um, you know, lenses, but to, but to me, precarity and, and, and durability, right? The new jobs are often offered on a seasonal basis as opposed to sort of a career basis. Uh, then there's the kind of geographical distribution of costs and benefits. The environmental justice community in the U.S. has focused a great deal on the burden that black and brown communities in particular have taken from the carbon economy. Uh, they bear the front of it. They bear the risk of climate change uh, disproportionately. Uh, how do you manage the transition uh, so that those, uh, you know, both again, ethical considerations uh, of that distribution are taken into account, but also so that you can bring people on board and sort of make the uh, society more resilient. Uh, 
And then the last one I'll mention is just the kind of global north, global south discussion around just transition for investors. We've spent way too much time looking at this as a national problem. I mean, I think in part because the way that Paris was designed, nationally defined contributions, you, it, it becomes a lens for policy, as Anne pointed out, sort of think about national governments. Um, but, you know, shifts in the automotive sector uh, uh, from carbon to uh, uh, low carbon uh, transportation uh, mean huge, uh, massive shifts in the kind of supply chains and resource uh, gathering that's going to take place that create an enormous amount of human rights risk and political risk that has to be taken into account. And uh, in the U.S., we tend to talk about sort of what happens to uh, coal-dependent communities uh, within the national framework and deindustrialization like, like that was on the 70s. But we don't talk as much about the kind of global north, global south um, issues that will necessarily emerge if we have a global structural transformation. Thanks, David. So over 100 countries have set or are considering net zero emission targets. This provides huge opportunities, but also threats to poorer countries and communities in terms of widening um, inequalities. Now, how do we make sure that no, no person and indeed no country is left behind in this once in a lifetime shift towards a greener and more sustainable world? Sure. Well, I think I'm going to come back to the point I was trying to make before. Again, I, I'm coming at this very much from an investment lens and that we really need to be adopting that holistic approach in considering the social implications of climate change when we're trying to design solutions, whether that's governments, investors, business, etc. And it can't be just an add-on, it can't be just an afterthought, but really considered as a core element of climate, the climate transition and every solution that we do. So what we're trying to do at the PRI is at the moment, investors tell us that the number one issue that they are focused on, that, they are, that, they, that they're considering, that they're working on is climate change. So we're trying to elevate human rights to the same level as climate change within the, the work programs that we're, that we're doing and things that we have like the just transition. And we're really trying to get, get our signatories, our members, to really consider the implications of the transition to a low carbon economy on workers, on communities, on developing countries as well as developed countries, on consumers, in, uh, you know, in terms of access to affordable energy and to environmentally friendly solutions. So if decarbonisation, as people have said, just leads to um, visibly increasing inequalities in society, then it risks hampering or really stopping climate action because of social or political backlashes that it will trigger. So really we need to enact large-scale systemic changes to combat climate change and we need a social contract that really addresses the impact of workers in their communities, especially those facing systemic inequalities. I think achieving the decarbonisation targets must be done in a way that creates decent work and, support, and supports broad prosperity by ma maintaining strong communities and strong economies and thriving communities. A lot of the solutions that, solutions that we see being designed at the moment to fight climate change are just not really taking into consideration the unintended consequences and effects 
that they may have on workers and communities. I think it's too much focused on the emissions reduction target. Um, you know, the ILO projects and predicts that if the right policies to promote a greener economy are put in place, then 24 million new jobs will be created, more than enough to offset the 6 million uh, jobs that will be lost as we transition. Of course, as David said, one of the really important things is that as we create new jobs, that they're good jobs. Um, I could talk about my father-in-law who was a coal miner, but as a coal miner, you used to be able to bring your family up really well. And those jobs had things like pensions attached to them. They had um, healthcare, et cetera, attached to them. They had a decent wage. They were highly uh, unionised. And we've got to make sure all of these jobs that we create are decent jobs in that context. I think investing more in the green economy can really advance the decent work and in and inclusive work agenda if it's rooted in international human rights as environmental um, degradation disproportionately affects the vulnerable populations and low carbon economies. Recovering, recovery plans should really adopt just transition principles to ensure that jobs are created across society that match with investments in um, net zero emissions, energy, uh, industrial building and transport systems, and include climate resilience measures has also been uh, talked about. So we need to really ensure that there's a people-centric approach, workers, communities, most effective, uh, that they have a voice in all of this. You know, in the midst of the uh, global climate emergency, escalating inequality and the COVID pandemic, we've already seen that taking place. So I don't think we can exacerbate that growing inequality um, e even further. So it's really paramount that we address inadequacies and, and the unstable nature of our current financial and economic systems. So international human rights standards, the SDGs, the Paris Agreement are really the universal frameworks that must be used. So um, we're, we're, again, coming back, we're try, really trying to get our investors to engage with, F, S, uh, with investee companies, the businesses that they're invested in, to make sure that this is done in a holistic way, that we think about human rights and we think about climate in the in the same way, and we've we've look we've put together a number of guides with David's organisation. Um, we've put together statements about the just about a just transition, but it just it comes back to thinking about it holistically, but make sure that it flows into all of our work programs, whether they're from governments, whether they're from investors, whether they're from business or civil society groups. Thanks, thanks, Fiona. Uh, David, uh, building on Fiona's point that climate justice is part of human rights, now some has characterized this decade as being the decade of social justice from the Black Lives Matter movement to gender equality and this month, the Pride celebrations. Now in the context of our discussion today, the Extinction Rebellion is demanding climate justice. How can we mainstream the climate agenda um, uh, how can we mainstream this issue into the climate agenda of global of the global financial community? Uh, 
So it's a complicated question with the word mainstream stuck in there, right? Uh, at the last PRI in person, so Fiona's organization has a big event where we all get together from the community globally and, and uh, uh, sadly we don't see each other anymore, but the last one when we were all in the same place, uh, so I heard someone in the hallway say, gosh, these people won't stop talking about just transition. And we thought, oh, this is great, right? We've made it, now it's on the investor agenda, but it hasn't led to a lot of action. Uh, it's led to a lot of talk. Uh, so what, I'll say two things. What, what investors can do and then what sustainable finance policy can do. Um, so what can investors do that would sort of lead to action and, and put the kinds of things Fiona's uh, talked about into, in, into practice? Well, uh, there's Climate Action 100 Plus. It's the biggest collaborative organization of investors engaging around climate issues. Where do issues about workers and communities enter into that work? Uh, one of the things we've been doing is talking with actually a group of uh, faith-based investors called the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility here in the States about engaging uh, public utilities, publicly owned utilities, publicly traded utilities, uh, that have, all have decarbonization plans, but in those decarbonization plans, um, apart from the adequacy of the decarbonization by 2050, you know, kind of thing, workers and communities just don't, don't appear. Um, but how can investors bring those issues to the fore when they have the scenario planning? Uh, Climate Action 100 Plus just had a great week last week, right? Uh, uh, real uh, big news out of Exxon. Uh, where do we integrate just transition into those kinds of victories? Um, some investors, there's a, uh, 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 an organization uh, I'm just fascinated with called the Solidarity Funds in Quebec. It's a worker-owned and led retirement, supplemental retirement fund. So not sort of a defined benefit pension plan, but a retirement fund uh, that came out of the labor movement. And they invest in SMEs throughout Quebec who are in sort of carbon intensive manufacturing. They're, the, they're not the lender of last resort, but they're kind of the investor that, that, that covers the whole province. Uh, they've engaged their workers directly uh, about their fears and the opportunities there are for decarbonizing within their sectors. Like what will a worker led just transition look like and how can investors push that? That would be, you know, another thing investors can do. Uh, or they can enter into social dialogue. In South Africa, there's a presidential commission on the just transition. It's not clear where investors fit in the, in the conventional role of business, labor, government, social dialogue that, that is sort of embodied in, in South African and, and lots of European practice. Uh, so far, investors are usually used to dissolve social dialogue, right? Uh, with market efficiency um, being used as a counterpoint to long-term planning. So that's what investors can do, uh, they can. You know, engage the workers directly, they can take on the top 100 emitters, uh, they can be part of broader, you know, embedded in broader social structures. I think the other sort of big victory for responsible investment over the past year or two years is the shift towards sustainable finance policy. And Mario already talked about uh, disclosure and sort of disclosure regimes. Uh, there's a lot of climate disclosure regimes happening right now in the US and in the EU. Where do social issues fit in? The EU sustainable finance taxonomy consciously push social issues to the next round, right? Well, they should be in the first round. Uh, if the SEC asks for climate disclosure, it should ask for transition for transition disclosure as well. Uh, this is not because because that's what a holistic approach looks like. And, and, and lastly, uh, I mean, I think carbon taxes, and I totally agree with Francois that you have carbon taxes, you have to have redistribution, and that's that's one policy. We're spending a lot more time these days. I think at least the climate activist community uh, with whom I engage uh, talking about industrial policy. So public finance on, on the front foot. And in the US, potentially the creation of a public investment bank or some kind of vehicle for the build back better agenda. Um, how do we deploy uh, 
the frame of just transition? How do we integrate environmental and social considerations? Where does racial justice, decent work, and decarbonization intersect in a public investment agenda that will shape private markets and like disclosure lead to different kinds of behavior from investors because uh, you're setting prices differently and you're sort of redirecting economic uh, activity towards the things we need for, our, for a super fast, immense structural transformation of the whole global economy. streams and I know that kind of sounds different right but basically they're like these work programs that they've created and they've created five different kinds and they all have to do with uh, different types uh, one's a microprudential supervision one another one's a macro financial one another one is a scaling up green finance one bridging the data gaps uh, and then the last one is a research one and so what they do is they hand out these work streams Right. And, and they basically um, give these out to these panels. They then in turn go over them, read over them, and then they use these mandates to uh, basically, you know, you know, go go out of their way to fulfill these tasks and, and to complete these objectives, basically. And ultimately, what they're hoping for is that they'll provide some kind of, um, you know, relevance to the work that they're doing. Um, and this is all being brought to you by the NGFS. They're hoping to help build these portfolios by building a fundamental analysis using ESG data combined with financial data. And then there's different ways that they're going to implement this. And, and they're hoping that these work streams that they're mandating uh, will help to turn a profit, right? 
Like that's what it's all about, turning profit. So what really pisses me off is you have these fuckers. <laughs> and I say these fuckers because you have these fuckers that for the longest time, they were turning profit on ruining the world, right? And whether that was with uh, pollution or, or oil or, you know, even polluting some of the Gulf here, whether that was the oil spills or whatever they were doing, right? And then you even, you even had it to where they were even drilling and it wasn't even profit profitable to drill. And so they were doing all this stuff and they were pumping money back then. And now they're like, okay, we got to stop all that. <laughs> we got to do a 360, all that. All of a sudden the planet's the most important thing. And it's, it's a bunch of bullshit because the only reason they're doing that is because of inflation, right? They want to keep controlling the money supply and they know they have to stop and start the economy at will. And that's the only way they're going to be able to do it is with this kind of green finance, right? And, and it's all under the guise of climate change. So I'm going to let you listen to this last panel. This last panel goes really in depth into how freaking crazy these guys are and what they're actually planning. Um, so take a listen. It's really disturbing, right? Because some of the, some of the ideas that they, that they kind of have is like, really? <laughs> You're going to charge me what? <laughs> uh, just because I drive a car with, uh, with gas? Uh, you're, you're, I'm only going to be allocated so many miles per month to use. Yeah, it's, it's that ridiculous. Um, this is going to affect every single man, woman, and child, city, town in America, all, all over the world. Like they're really going to go at this. And I, I don't know when this is going to happen. There, there's not like a deadline. I keep seeing 2023 pop up everywhere, um, in these data streams and, and, and their, um, and their uh, PDFs that they're that they're issuing out like everywhere, um, so that appears that that for me looks like some kind of target date that they're trying to hit. Who knows? We'll find out more. Um, but take a listen to this next panel. This was probably the most informing panel of the three days, where they really go in depth in what they're trying to pull here.
price of coffee is up 50% in a year. The price of sugar is up 42%. Okay, so everybody knows that there's massive inflation. And then the government says, well, it's 5%. And it's going to go away. So don't worry. It's going to, it's going to, we're, we're going to, we're going to be on top of this. We're going to lose this. But what if this is part of a plan to raise prices? The price of wages are going up. So if you hire employees, you have to pay them more. That means payroll tax is going up. The price of coffee goes up. They raise the price in the store. You pay a little bit more for it. That means the owner makes more money. The owner pays more taxes. You see how this works? Everything in the system costs more. GDP grows, okay? And GDP grows, that means tax revenue grows. So everything becomes a bigger number. And then the government's able to wash away the excessive spending of the past two decades because they're showing growth. Um, I, I would like to make sure that we all have, all have in mind that this is about risks. Risks for the planet, risks for countries, risks for investors and banks, say the financial ecosystem at large, and risk for companies. And the good thing is, by taking the company angle, we can aggregate everything, which is much harder if we try to start from another side of the global economy. The financial institutions and the investors are often uh, designated as the villains of the climate problem because they have been financing and they keep to some extent financing projects which involve uh, carbon emissions or if we put it even more radically because they do not only finance projects that will be solutions for the climate. The risk is for every level and if we tackle it at the company level we are on the right way and that is why we are saying that companies should make disclosures. Now, the issue of uh, the, 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 the carbon price. If we put a carbon price and we have the data released by the companies, we can have public policies that will penalize the carbon emissions. That will be absolutely crucial. Now on scopes one, two, and three. Um, scope one, this is the emissions that result from what is done directly within the company. Scope two, this is the energy and heat which is purchased by the company. So in other words, the uh, carbon emissions take place at the utility generating your heat and your electricity. And scope three, it's two very different animals, actually. Upstream, this is the other inputs that the company has purchased on the market. So between two and three, actually, we separate between energy consumption and the other types of purchases made by the company among its uh, providers. But we have a very different animal with scope three downstream, which is the um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions resulting from the use of the products and services made by the companies by uh, their purchasers, by their end users. And here I would say, I think we must demand that companies should report uh, their scope one, their scope two, and their scope three upstream, definitely. But it's a different kettle of fish with scope three downstream because it will be 
very much a function of what the consumer will do with the the service or the the good it purchased. Say, uh, you you buy a uh, car. Uh, there is a lot of greenhouse gas incorporated in producing it. That is true. But then if you keep it in the garage and you look at it, that's one thing, but it will not generate much emissions. Uh, if you drive a lot, that will be a very different proposition. And the company manufacturing the car cannot be held responsible for the type of usage that will be made by the consumer, which takes us back to the importance of a price for the offense that we commit against the climate, that each company commits against the climate, or that each end user commits against the climate. And here, um, the, the, the carbon price is a nice, clean solution. Why? Because once we have the data available about uh, carbon emissions, all we need to do is to put a price on carbon even more, something even simpler actually we could do. We identify the energy sources that generate uh, carbon emissions and we tax them. And then we don't have to make very complex um, inter-industrial uh, calculations, inputs how much there is in each good, like the plan, like the, the, the plan, the GOS plan that we had in the communist regimes, which eventually was proved to not work. We don't have to put all these uh, entrants into very complex matrix. The price will do the wonders of the market economy. It will convey information without you even knowing where it comes from. And here, I would like to make a mention to a old initiative, uh, which uh, unfortunately is uh, not quite back uh, on the fore. Uh, and it came from the US. Uh, we remember the initiative, I think it dates back to 2014. It was then called a populist uh, carbon tax, and it was led by prominent, uh, prominent figures from the Republican and Democrat Party, like uh, George Schultz and James Baker. And what did, did these guys say? They said, we uh, want to create a carbon tax. Of course, we know that as such, it's a regressive tax because as a proportion of their total income, the uh, poor people will be much more affected than the rich. But there is a second leg to it. Rather than the money collected going to the general funds of the treasury, it will be redistributed. Exactly all the money collected will be redistributed to all the individuals on the one head, one share in this amount of money. And as a result, with this second leg, it's no longer regressive. It's progressive. No gilet jaune without, uh, with this. No uh, yellow jackets. On the contrary, the people would get to the street and say, we want you to, to hike the tax, please. Save the planet and our wallets, by the way. Anyway, um, now, um, having said that we, we need to make a distinction between scope three upstream and downstream, and we, we need uh, the carbon price to put uh, uh, the reality of the price signal in the general economy and at the company level. I would like to just make one last point in this chapter, how we um, will measure uh, the intensities. Um, I think when we do uh, emissions as a 
proportion of uh, the market value of a company, be it uh, market cap or enterprise value, we're not going in the right direction. It has to be as a function of the company turnover, but this is not enough. It should also be expressed in terms of quantities. So for solids, that will be tons or kilos, if you like. And for gas and liquids, it will be liters and cubic meters. Because I think the uh, ESG analysts can do a lot of things, good things with these uh, datas. And they need to be uh, revealed precisely. And when you give as a, a proportion of the turnover, it uh, opacifies potentially a bit. So just go down to the raw data. The company has it, the raw data, give it to the uh, investors and to the whole investing community. And uh, this uh, will help the um, ESG analysts uh, measure properly the risks just as much as the financial analysts will have measured the risks on the financials. And as we know, uh, from the risk side, uh, ESG is the risk, the financial risk of the future. And of course, I'm, I'm aware there is the very strong uh, ethical dimension. I am all for it, but this is an individual matter. We cannot demand that uh, a full ecosystem transform itself into a charity or an endowment. That is not the way the private uh, economy functions, the capitalist system functions, and we have not invented some, something much better so far. So, uh, so thanks a lot, uh, uh, Olivier. So I, I think Remy and, and Herman will be also with you that uh, that we want uh, to obtain more data disclosed by corporates. So just to to summarize, um, uh, in terms of the indices uh, that can be used, you know the metrics uh, that can be used. So we are talking about scope one, scope two, and, and, and scope two and scope three with uh, with uh, downstream uh, scope three. Uh, you know, there is an open debate uh, how much we can uh, hold the, 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 the firm uh, responsible for it. Even if I assume in the in the case of large companies that uh, you can you could apply the law of large number to find out how much on average people are going to drive their car uh, to, to 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 define this. But maybe it, it, it's going to be more difficult for your. Uh, so you make the distinction between the carbon emissions. So the carbon intensity would be carbon emissions divided by the turnover. So, you know, it's a, a level of carbon divided, say, by millions of dollars or euros. And you also ask that uh, this would be this, this carbon intensity is defined uh, at the physical level product, which I trust you, 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 you believe can be done even for corporates who, are, who have multi products. So, you know, if I take the example of, of Apple, they have computers, uh, uh, Apple Watch and, uh, and, and iPads uh, and servers. And, and yet, you know, they, they have a way to, to, to define the intensity of each of these products so that uh, investors can look into their, their, their business models. Uh, I see first I give the floor to Remy, then back to Olivier and then to, to Herman. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to compliment some um, of um, what, you know, Olivier was, was highlighting um, and, and maybe also getting back to one of Herman's points. So um, on the emission, I think we need both the absolute 
and the relative metrics, you know, it, because I 100% agree with Herman's view that at the end of the day, it's not a relative question. <laughs> we have to get the absolute number of emission down. Uh, but clearly, when you start thinking about how to allocate, for example, a fair share of the budget to companies, then you have to have a mechanism uh, to take into account, you know, their relative size, because you know uh, you you have to do that exercise, and that's where the the relative metric on intensity that Olivier is highlighting is necessary. But but I, I think we should not forget sort of the end goal, which is which is to reduce the absolute emission. Because one of the drawback of only looking at at relative intensity is that uh, you you can actually decrease your intensity, but because you're growing your production, you still emit more. And that's one of the issue we're seeing in the uh, oil and gas sector today, as an example. So so that's one, one component. And then maybe uh, uh, going back to the scope three um, you know, downstream uh, uh, effect, which is uh, maybe one that is, um, in a sense, a bit more complicated uh, to to model or to disclose, but still, um, even from a pure risk assessment perspective, we think it's important to have uh, an assessment of the scope three. If you take, for example, again, an, an, oil, an oil pipeline or a gas pipeline, it has very little emission uh, until you get to the product itself, uh, which you know is carried through the pipeline. And so if you analyze the transition risk of, of these types of activities, then clearly you would want to uh, minimize your exposure to oil and gas pipeline, you know, if you want to minimize generally your, um, you know, your risk in this area. So, so it may be a bit more difficult, but we think it's worth the effort to try to get also to uh, downstream scope. Thank you, Remy. Olivier, I give you the, the floor back and then Herman. Very, very quickly anyway, uh, I think we fully agree. And on scope three downstream, yes, it has to be published. Uh, simply, I believe it's not fair to tax a company for the downstream emissions. Uh, it's a, it's a, a number which is super useful to assess the risks for the company, the transition risks for the company, but it is probably a bit unfair to charge the companies for them. You charge the consumer. The consumer, when they use their car, they pay for the petrol and so on and so on. So that, that is totally reconcilable, what we have been saying in this respect. And uh, uh, we have not mentioned the issue of scenarios. Maybe it is at this point that we could, and not in the second part of the discussion, but if we talk about scenarios, I think risk-wise, again, it is super important to help the market uh, figure out what is the transition risk implied by this and that company. And uh, the best way is to say, well, tell us uh, what is the PL impact for you guys um, if uh, the price of carbon is 50 uh, now, which, by the way, it is in, in Europe and in other jurisdictions. It went uh, quite nicely up recently. If it is 100, and I would be adamant that we should also point out uh, 150, if not for 2025, certainly for 2030. So we give analysts the uh, tools to assess how much of a transition risk there is in a company. And here, the scope three downstream will be uh, a, a tool in, in this assessment as well, because uh, if it becomes very expensive for the consumer to use something, probably the demand for such products will go down. 
Yes. So actually, I was going to 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 try to to clarify the 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 point that you made, or at least illustrate it. Uh, um, that uh, effectively, uh, say you have a price of carbon of uh, of of two hundred, and if you are producing uh, a product which is going to use a lot of energy uh, by the consumers. Um, and uh, they are impacted through this much higher price of carbon, which would be $200 per ton, for instance. Uh, in, your, um, in your investment plans uh, as a corporate, you should factor in that the demand for such products is likely to be much lower uh, given that uh, carbon prices would be higher. So even though you know, you're not penalized directly uh, for the down, downstream uh, scope three, you would be pen penalized because you take into account that the demand for your product that will <coughs> consume a lot of carbon would be would uh, would probably go down. So uh, that's uh, that's uh, very very clear and very useful, uh, uh, Olivier. Herman, uh, you want to add something at, at this stage? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, and first of all, I would agree with Remy about that relative uh, measurement is, of course, important, right? I'm not saying we should we should get rid of that, but the reality is that our emissions are still increasing, right? And so, going to net zero, try to sort of picture that that is actually going all the way to net zero, right? And if you're still rising, although we're rising maybe you know slower, um, but it, it's still going up. Right, so we need to get sort of, uh, I think, uh, a reality check that we need to move actually to declining emissions instead of rising slower, right? And, and because we need to actually create a tipping point to re reduction of emissions. And uh, if you focus too much on relative, you, you just forget that in a way. And that's why I sort of uh, highlight a little bit about focusing on absolute emissions not only from corporates, from, from everyone, agriculture, consumers, the entire society, right? So that's one point. So secondly, I'm all in favor of pricing what econ economists call externalities, right? This is the stuff we forgot to put in our models and now we realize that we have to put it back in our models because it's usually impact the world, right? We forgot to, how to, you know, and so I think pricing externalities is critical, not only for carbon, but basically for your entire um, uh, footprint as a company because you need to understand, and you can only express it in money because that is how the capitalism system is working. You need to understand what the impact is of your footprint, right? And, and, and not only today, because if you, if you take a snapshot of your emissions today, that's interesting, but more interesting is actually the, the trend. How was it, how did it sort of, how was the trend sort of uh, developing over the years? But as an investor, and I think uh, for, and also for, for regulators, what's much more important is what is your what are your plans, concrete plans in terms of managing to, towards a net zero 2050 end goal, right? So I'm coming back to the science-based targets. That's really relevant because then you talk about the future. And we want to see that the trends, and if we take snapshots every quarter of emission data, we want to make sure that the trend is sort of following what they promised in their science-based targets, right? And, and that, I think, is forward-looking, and that will drive uh, valuations of companies. I mean, as an investor, I'm not, not, not so much interested in sort of the P analyzing the P&L of last year. It's much more about forward-looking. What's, what's, you know, what is the range of scenarios that could happen with these companies and do they really understand their, their, their entire footprint in terms of you know, implicit cost on society? Because one, one thing we know for sure, 
that the threshold will go up for companies to manage that uh, more effectively because it's it's a, it, it's nece- it's just necessary. We can't continue like this forever, and I think that the science has proven that um, you know uh, extensively. So that is, I think that's really important. Uh, much more focus on the on 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 the forward-looking uh, data and information for for investors and for for regulators to understand uh, the risk of this this company. Um, because that, again, that will drive the, the valuations of, of, of today. So I think those are the, the, the two things I would like to add. And maybe one last comment, if I may, Benoit, on the, the point on radical transparency, what uh, was promoted by uh, Al Gore. I'm all in favor of that. I think that is really critical to achieve that um, because it deals with the greenwashing, it deals with so many issues. And the good thing is, there's, a, I think, a very positive development that if you look at currently how much alternative data and non-financial data we, we are collecting uh, as an industry already, uh, coming from satellites, all kinds of different things. And if you look at what I call the datafication uh, in society, that we're going to sort of measure about pretty much everything and the digitization of, the, of, that, da- of that data, and, and looking at applications like AI and, and machine learning and all that stuff, then basically we are getting closer to transparency and measuring radical pr- transparencies. And then you, you can't get away with the greenwashing anymore because in a way the, the machines will, 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 you know, will find out if the emperor is wearing any clothes or not, right? And, and, and we're not that far away from that. So um, technology will definitely be a driver. Alternative data technology will be definitely a driver to reach this more transparency across the board.
So you can hear that guy salivating when it comes to AI and other types of technologies so they can keep a watchful eye that everybody's uh, <laughs> using net zero emissions. Yeah, I wish we could do the same for how they spend their money, right? One other thing I should mention is that the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, um, or the TCFD that was mentioned over and over throughout these panels, um, that is something that they're trying to use, but it's a private organization built of 31 members. And of course, <laughs> with any private organization, you're going to have, yeah, uh, you're going to have collusion. You're going to have uh, all sorts of kind of funny business going on. And this is this is like no other one, right? So if you look here at this one, Michael Bloomberg owns this. You know, he's also the guy that runs Bloomberg Terminals. So if he controls the data when it comes to how ESG and, and other financial, uh, you know, companies and, and, and recommendations and markets and, and climate related information is, is being read and being delivered to investors and lenders and insurers. Um, well, that's a conflict of interest, right? So, uh, yeah, uh, I didn't I didn't put this panel in, but in a separate panel, um, Christine Lagarde was like, we're not going to let this happen. <laughs> we're going to keep private organizations. Thank you for all your efforts, Michael Bloomberg. But we're going to we're not going to use a TCFD. <laughs> so even they want to control that part as well, too. Uh, so they don't want to leave it open to the private sector to to do their own type of uh, how would, how would we say, uh, you know, uh, financial information as far as uh, climate-related uh, uh, risk and opportunities, right? So all that is completely fascinating. Basically, you have end-to-end -end loop here where the central bankers are going are, are to basically control all the financial information when it comes to financial markets and how they're priced when it comes to climate-related risk and opportunities. And then you're also going to have um, what they recommend for more effective climate-related uh, disclosures and what they promote and what they, you should be investing in and what you should be insuring in and what those underwriting decisions should look like. Uh, they're going to want transparency. They're going to want stability. Um, basically, they're going to want everything, <laughs> right? And so that's their strategy, ultimately. And then they're going to start and stop like a spigot you know, like a water spigot, um, the money flowing to countries, to banks, uh, to smaller central banks, to, uh, you know, uh, uh, individuals, to corporations, to businesses. And if you're not hitting your, your net zero emissions, well, guess what? You don't get any money. And, and that's how that's going to work, ladies and gentlemen. And that's exactly what they were talking about today. Uh, so this is going to be crazy times. Um, I don't know when this next stoppage is going to happen, but it's going to be in the name of climate change. And it's going to be under the guise of that. And that's going to be how they're going to control the world. Uh, I was hoping for aliens. <laughs> I think a lot of us were hoping, oh, cool, they're going to do an alien invasion and that'll be phase two. Nope, it's going to be climate change. Uh, this is their phase two. This is how they control the world. This is how they continue printing. This is how they're going to uh, use that narrative going forward. And so we're going to we're going to do a whole other episode on ESG 
because that has infiltrated uh, the Bitcoin industry. And I have done the research on that and I'm ready to release it. So we'll release that this weekend, hopefully. Uh, hopefully I can get that out. If not, then it'll be first thing early next week. This took a lot of time just because there's so much uh, research to do. I had to um, really read a lot of stuff that was just outside of my, um, you know, uh, expertise, right? Like even right now, like I felt like I, I learned so much, but um, please go out and look at the newsletter that I send out and, and check my, check my, check my facts, check everything there. Um, yeah, it was just a lot of information. So by all means, share this with everybody. Please spread this out with whoever you can. Please share this on social media. Um, cause I feel like people need to know what's coming. I think if, I think if most, I think if more people would have knew COVID was coming and, and about how they were going to do this whole lockdown and, and how they were going to control the narrative and they're going to make people stop working. I think a lot, a lot more people would have gotten angry about it. Um, would have, there would have been, you know, uh, protests about it. And a lot of us just kind of accepted it, uh, myself included, and, and fell victim to it, right? Um, this time around, I think we should be ready for this. I think we should all stand together and be like, no, fuck that. Like, we're not going to stand around and, and put up with this climate change initiative under the guise of uh, monetary policy that you guys are trying to pull here. Like, we want you guys out and we want a decentralized system like Bitcoin as a currency for the world. And this charade that you keep pulling, well, your time's up. We're done with that. And so that, at least that's what, how I feel. So um, that's why this is so important. I think it's important because people need to know about it. It needs to be reported. And it pisses me off that C CBS News, uh, fucking Vox, fucking NPR, fucking NBC, fucking Fox, fucking none of these motherfuckers will report this shit. How the fuck are you not reporting on something as serious as this? Like, this should be making all sorts of news. You have every fucking cartel member in the in the central banking sector getting together for fucking three days and no one's talking about it on the news? Fuck. Like, there's something seriously wrong there. So, anyways. I'm gonna get off my soapbox. Okay. You know, the entire time I was watching these panels, I just, I just couldn't help think to myself, like, thank, thank God for Bitcoin. Like, thank Satoshi for Bitcoin. Seriously. Um, had he never invented this, we would be seriously, seriously, seriously fucking screwed right now. It's literally the only thing that has given us a life force right now. It's the only thing that is giving people hope around the world that change can happen. That somehow, some way, we can prevail against this evil scum that is central bankers. We don't have to follow their fucking rules anymore. If they want to ruin the world with their money printing and their fiat currency, 
debt slavery regime, well, go right ahead. I opt out. I choose Bitcoin. I want that as my currency. I will die on this hill to protect it. We'll do whatever we can to protect Bitcoin. See you next time.